Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'd like to call this meeting of the Charter Review Committee to order, please. Uh, Shirley, would you please handle the uh, notices that need to be read? If you wish to speak to items that are on the agenda or items that are not on the agenda under public comment, there are speaker slips in the back of the room. If you can complete those and turn them in to Don here sitting at the front, um, we will call on you when that time comes. You will have three minutes for public comment. If you have a cell phone, if you could turn your cell phone to silent, that would be appreciated. Um, and I believe that's all the announcements. Thank you, Shirley. Would you please call the roll now? Yes. Joanne Fuller? Cecily Hastings? Grantland Johnson? Alan LaFosso? Here. Robert Murphy? Here. Chester Newland? Here. Chris Tapio? Here. John Taylor? He's absent. He submitted a, an email stating that he would be away on vacation. Tina Thomas? And Jay Wisham? Here. We, we have a quorum. We do have a quorum. Thank you. Mark, do you have any staff comment this evening? Yes, I do. I have two brief comments. Um, actually, probably not brief. First of all, in terms of uh, your community outreach meetings, I've distributed a spreadsheet this evening that looks like this. Uh, this chronicles the information that you've provided to staff related to your availability for those meetings. What you'll also notice is that in blue, these are new dates. Uh, we've had some changes to a couple of the meetings in each of the, the four uh, groupings in July, September, and November. So for July 15th, for example, we'll need some assistance in identifying a committee member or two or three to assist with that particular meeting. In addition to that, all of the start times for the meetings have been moved back 60 minutes. So if the meeting previously was identified as a 5.30 start, that meeting now begins at 6.30. And similarly, the 6 o'clock meetings now begin at 7. That does raise a potential issue related to the July 20th meeting for this committee. At the last meeting, you indicated that you'd like a start time of 7.30. And with a 6.30 start for the outreach meeting, I think uh, I'm confident that, that you are first on the agenda and that will provide adequate time for whoever attends that meeting to come back to this meeting in time for the 7.30 start. Okay, Mark, that's a, an item on our consent calendar, and why don't we take those adjustments that we need to make up at that time? Okay. Is there any, anything else you want to comment yes, on? Yes, briefly, uh, the city has an email subscription service where a person is able to subscribe to whatever types of uh, issues that they find important or interesting to them. And we've added a box to that email subscription service for this committee. It's under the Boards and Commissions link. Uh, and the way you get there is to go to the city's homepage at www.cityofsacramento.org. And in the upper left column, there is a link to click here for email, for the email subscription service. And if you scroll down on that next page to Boards and Commissions, although you are a committee, there's a link to the Sacramento Charter Review Committee. There are a couple members of this uh, committee that are signed up. We have not yet submitted any email updates to members, uh, although I will tell you there are 43 people that have now subscribed to that. And so we will in the future begin to send out notices to them when the agenda materials are posted, as well as any updates to the website.
Thank and if you. you have any questions about how to walk through that process, feel free to contact me and I'll walk you through that. Okay. Uh, thanks, Mark. Uh, members, without objection, uh, I'd like to take up the three uh, I consent I items uh, separately because we need to spend a little time on the work plan updates. And uh, I have a couple of questions on item two, so I think the most efficient way is to just take them separately. And with that in mind, um, you've all received the minutes on the last meeting in advance of tonight's meeting. Are there any corrections or modifications? If not, I'll entertain a motion and a second to approve the minutes. Moved by Mr. Murphy. Is there a second? second. Thank you, Mr. Wisham. Uh, all in favor? Aye. All opposed? Minutes are passed. Okay. On the public contact, we had two um, emails in our packet, Mark, uh, and you indicated to me that you have responded to both. And what I'd like to ask you is, what did you say to these people? <laughs> in one case, it was a conversation, and the other it was an email. Uh, with Ms. Pacell Benavides, we talked about uh, the fact that the bicycles, bike trails, lanes, and transportation issues are not within the scope of the committee's work plan. We talked about some alternatives for her if she had concerns or issues related to those uh, specific issues on how to bring a, a policy issue like that to uh, the city. And I suggested to her that uh, there were ways to work directly with the council on that, whether through her council member or the mayor's office uh, or perhaps even the department. I didn't, we didn't talk about specifically what those issues were, but I invited her to contact me if she had any additional questions. And, and it appeared that she was uh, happy with that response and pleased and, and understood okay. that. Fine. Secondly, uh, with Ms. Cornelius, uh, I sent her an email uh, in response to that because I wanted to make sure that she was aware that you had open meetings, that your meetings were noticed in accordance with the Brown Act, and that's essentially the, the crux of my, my email. I did let her know that uh, the meetings were scheduled or were posted and, and noticed just as the council meetings are, that a meeting schedule uh, was available on the committee's website. I noted that for her. And uh, indicated that a link to the archive videos were also available from that website, along with a number of other materials. And I invited her to attend uh, the next meeting this evening and to contact me if she had any questions. Okay, great. Just as long as she notice, knows all the meetings are noticed publicly, we have uh, all kinds of ways she can participate, and we encourage that. Um, so, in any event, thank you. Okay, the third item is our work plan uh, update, and as uh, Mark indicated, we do have some need to revise the community uh, meeting calendar because of the dates and times. Um, and the, the uh, item you passed out this evening is... Um, are the new times and the new uh, dates, is that correct? Yes, the, any date that is new is noted in blue. Okay. And all of the times uh, have been moved back one hour. Okay. All right. I talked to Ms. Fuller at the um, beginning of the meeting, and I suggested to her that for the meetings at the Heart Center, which are 
running up against the start time for this, if she'd be willing to, to have herself and maybe one other committee member attend that meeting and make the presentation, um, I think that's a way to solve that problem. Then she may, if she takes someone else, they may come back a little tardy for this meeting, but at least we'll have both meetings covered and um, proceed that way. If that seems to be a reasonable solution to this timetable uh, to the committee, we will proceed with that. That's okay. Seeing everyone nod, I think it's is okay. So, uh, Joanne, thank you for doing that. That appreciate that, and um, you probably shouldn't take more than one other person, or we won't have a quorum here with you, right? Okay. Uh, whatever you decide to do, uh, very helpful. Then the idea with these, this work schedule is to give Mark uh, a new filled-in chart with the new times and dates so that he'll have a sense of who's going to attend these meetings. Um, now, do we have one coming up that we, we need assistance with right away? Yes, that's the meeting on Wednesday, July 15th. This has been rescheduled from the 23rd and it is also at a different location. It now will be held at the Stockton Boulevard Resource Center. Okay, I, I, what time is that? That will be at 7 p.m. Okay, I can be at that one. Okay, anything else on the, on the um, revised dates? Just briefly for the committee's note, on Wednesday, November 18th, the date change there uh, now, as a result of the date change, we will have uh, two outreach meetings on the same evening. Oh, okay. And so they both will begin at the same time at different locations, and that may also add a bit of complexity to that, but thankfully it does not con conflict with this meeting schedule. Okay. Well, I think if we can just provide you with the dates were available, then we can sort through and, and assign, and maybe for the next meeting we can have these meetings kind of assigned to everybody yes. and, and hand it out. Okay. All right, the, the next item um, on the agenda relates to the work program, and um, Mr. Tapio and I had uh, a conversation, and he, he raised the issue of, of perhaps not having sufficient focus on the executive mayor um, form of government um, at our meetings. And I, I believe this is worth uh, some discussion by the committee. Uh, we've honestly tried to balance um, and focus um, these meetings so that they would be fair and unbiased. And I think uh, I think we've been successful in that. In the May 18th meeting, we had a number of academics, uh, Mr. Sonenshine, Mr. Severa, and Mr. Waste. Both, I thought, were balanced in terms of explaining the pros and cons of uh, mayor council and council manager forms. I think on June uh, 4th, we had Henry Gardner, who's obviously a proponent of the council manager form, Jerry Newfarmer, who is an experienced city manager in a number of cities, including Cincinnati, um, has worked in, in hybrids like San Jose and other cities, and 
I think is, is kind of takes a middle ground to that. And then Mr. Whitehurst, the former mayor of Fresno, was uh, obviously a proponent of the um, uh, executive mayor council form of government. And then on June 15th, Mr., uh, we had Mr. Fair and then Jay Goldstone, who's the chief operating officer for San Diego, um, for Mayor Jerry Sanders, talked to us on the telephone. He'd pre- previously worked in Pasadena, so he had a, a balance there. And then Matt Heimel, who is the, now the CAO <coughs> in Marin County, had formerly worked f- in the budgeting process in San Francisco and, and worked uh, in many capacities for for Mayor Willie Brown. Um, this evening, we tried to be honest, and uh, we tried to honestly focus on nationally recognized organizations to give us some helpful information. Obviously, the National Civic League uh, is a nonprofit that has, has developed model charters for both the council manager and the mayor council form. ICMA, obviously, is a, an advocate organization for the council manager form. But we couldn't find an organization, national organization, who was an advocate for the mayor council. And there are some an- individuals in, in around the state who obviously promote that on the Internet and so on. But uh, an organization, a national organization like the National Civic League or ICMA and so on, we, we just couldn't identify one. So I, th- I think tonight there's going to be an obvious bias toward the council manager form in, in this forum tonight, which is, is um, what we're going to be seeing, I think. But thinking about this, and I've talked to uh, Mr. Tapio, I've talked to the staff, <clears throat> I think it would be helpful if we could plan a session to get two or three executive mayors here. And I've asked the staff to talk to uh, Canole Montgomery, who's the mayor's chief of staff. I've talked to Mr. Tapio. I think they're willing to help us to see if we can convene a panel of executive mayors. And uh, maybe we could get, you know, the attorney general over here or, or, you know, a number of other mayors uh, here to talk to us about what their experience has been as an executive mayor in this form. I think that would be uh, <laughs> be interesting. Um, but I think would also be helpful and would tend to uh, balance the situation a little bit. So if I think what that's going to mean, though, in terms of our work plan, that will mean that we're going to have to shift the August meeting down perhaps a week. And, Mark, talking to you, it looks like we can maybe do that and build that in so that the first part of August, if we can pull that off, uh, would have that session uh, here. Um, So that's kind of what I'm proposing. And if uh, the committee... um, doesn't have any objection. Uh, Mr. Tapio said he's willing to put a little time in that, and that'll be a big effort. And Mark, if you can work with the mayor's chief of staff to try to make that happen, I think that would be helpful to the committee. You, did you want to elaborate on no, that? No, I, I think your the schedule accommodates has a lot of flexibility built in, and certainly there's a room for uh, including an additional session. 
and I, and I would anticipate down the road you may have other ideas during the course of this work plan that will require adjustment. Okay, does anybody on the committee have any thoughts about that? You willing to take that on, Chris? <laughs> okay, I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> I, he'd be the illogical person. So if that meets with your approval, we'll, we'll go ahead and try to make that happen and uh, work with Chris and, and uh, Canole on that and see if we can, we can make that happen. Who? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. Newland. Now, the uh, National Conference of Mayors uh, has a very strong office in Washington, D.C., and I work with them from time to time. They can probably be quite helpful. And Chris? Uh, yeah, my thought was let's, let's, see, let's reach out to the Attorney General and uh, maybe Alan Autry and, and find out if they or maybe their CAO might be available to come speak with us, and then we can re report back um, on our next meeting on the 20th about what, if anything, we'd be able to find. Okay. Okay, we'll try to make that happen. Thank you for, for helping out with that. I appreciate it. Um, so then what we'll need to do, in addition to the community meetings, adjustments on the work plan, we'll need to factor this in some way, too, on the action plan. Right. That's correct, and, and when we do that, we'll post it onto the website. And my intention is to do that early next week so that people have an awareness of what has changed, particularly with these community meetings. Okay. Uh, Mr. Murphy? Uh, right behind the uh, work plan and the uh, consent is a what looks to be a new edition of the benchmark cities matrix. I wasn't quite sure what had changed. Is it redlined somehow? I, or? I can address that. <laughs> we had a few empty boxes that staff was still conducting research on. And so if you looked really carefully, really carefully at some of the prior versions, there were a few boxes that did not have information in that. And we've conducted additional research and now have a complete document. Okay. So I'm going to have to look really carefully. <laughs> <you're> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we, we have a lawyer who's interested in looking at red lines. <laughs> okay. Um, maybe Mark can circle those for you, Bob. And, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, at this point, I think um, that takes care of our consent calendar, and at this point I think we're ready for item number four, the presentation by the National Civic League. Uh, Mark, you'll want to get him on the phone and... and <clears throat> Agenda item number four, and you can he can you hear me okay now? I've turned on the microphone. Okay, we're gonna have to cut this short because I have another thing that I have to do here shortly. How much time do you have? Uh, I have budgeted from seven to seven thirty here, and I have to 
be some place at, or uh, leave for some place at 745. Let me briefly introduce uh, Derek. He is the Senior Vice President of the National Civic League. And at this point, uh, we've talked about having him provide an overview of his background, the National Civic League, and the work they do. So at this time, I'll turn it over to Derek. Okay. Hello, everybody. Hi, Derek. Thank you for uh, taking your time. Uh, let's see. I just want to, I'll just go over this quickly because my time is limited. But uh, I am the Senior Vice President of the National Civic League. Um, we are an or the nation's oldest good government organization. We were founded in 1894 by a bunch of uh, civic rebel elders of that time period. That included uh, Theodore Roosevelt before he became New York Police Commissioner, uh, Louis Brandeis uh, when he was a young attorney, Marshall Field, uh, who had, uh, of course, been a department store owner, and uh, 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 Charles Evan Hughes, who later ran for president against uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson and became chief justice of the Supreme Court. But the reason why um, our organization was originally convened was because of the corruption in local government of that time period. Uh, there was a lot of concern as far as how local government functioned. There was a uh, with the corruption, nepotism, backdoor dealings. And so they came together to look at ways in which to professionalize local government. Um, one of the products uh, that came from their convening was uh, in 1900 came the first uh, municipal plan which outlined a different model of governance and operations for local government. And in 19, uh, there were a few different renditions, and in 1915, in the second uh, revision, the uh, model city charter uh, was created, which gave birth to the uh, council manager form of government and the uh, profession of city management. Um, uh, the uh, National Civic League is headquartered in, in Denver, Colorado. We focus on uh, two main areas. One is uh, working with local governments and communities uh, as far as uh, uh, problem solving, um, uh, uh, ways in which uh, they can work more effectively uh, and efficiently. Um, we published the nation's oldest uh, journal, uh, the National Civic Review, of which I believe you might have one of the articles that I wrote on El Paso that I'll cover here in just a second. And, uh, and then also the All-America City Award, which is the nation's oldest uh, uh, civic award, which is given to 10 communities annually. We've done this for 60 years um, uh, for those uh, communities that uh, uh, work together well as a team to tackle pressing challenges. So government, businesses, nonprofits, and residents uh, work together to solve those issues. So. I'll just tell you uh, a little bit about the model city charter. Um, uh, the, Mark, did you share anything with the folks as far as the model city charter? We've made a copy available uh, with the city clerk. And okay. I believe down the road we intend to purchase copies for the committee members. Okay, very good. Now the model city charter, uh, this is the eighth edition that uh, we recently completed about four years ago. 
um, my, which is probably five years ago now. But uh, what this uh, model city charter is, is it provides communities with uh, a, a, a model charter follow. Now, the thing with this charter is that it focuses on the council manager form, although it does with the changing times and everything, uh, the revision committee was smart enough to recognize that there are other forms that uh, are very applicable uh, for uh, communities. And so we, they um, revised the council manager form, the, the charter that describes the council manager form, but then they also added in some other options which uh, entail the strong mayor, uh, uh, City administrator, office, uh, administrative op chief administrative officer, and, and uh, uh, those different types of forms because uh, you know there are different uh, communities of different sizes that are dealing with different issues. So they included those different forms too. Um, uh, the uh, uh, charter itself um, uh, covers a wide range of areas as far as whether it's. Uh, uh, how um, uh, officers are elected, um, how the city operates, the different roles and the different responsibilities. Um, as far as the other forms, it provides just more of an overview as far as the different um, uh, uh, structures and some of the pros and cons. So that's something that you might want to use as a tool later on as you explore your different options. And ask them, you know, with some of the key questions that for for commissions, it describes the process that commissions can go through. That's one of the key things that for commissions uh, to consider. Uh, one of the a few of the questions that it uh, um, talks about is, you know, should if you go to a strong mayor form, should the um, uh, city uh, designate uh, uh, or the mayor designate a a CAO um, uh, to help with the administrative um, uh, uh, tasks that are always entailed in the city. Um, and, and how should that chief uh, administrative officer be appointed? Uh, uh, there's different options and the one that uh, uh, we kind of uh, advocate for is, is that the mayor and the council work together to, with that appointment. Um, another thing is uh, uh, how should authority be divided between the mayor and council in a strong mayor form. So these, those are key questions that the, uh, the commission needs to take a look at and really consider as they move ahead if they are going to look at these different forms. Um, I'll talk a, a little bit about the uh, El Paso Charter Review. Um, what we did... Um, in, uh, and Mark, do they have that article? Yes. Okay. I'd be interested how many actually read it before tonight. But uh, um, the reason why we wrote this article was, first of all, we um, had heard that El Paso went from a strong mayor and went to a, a council manager form of government. And El Paso is a large city. I mean, it's a, you know, when you combine it with... Uh, uh, El Paso, I mean, with uh, Juarez, which is just across the river, it's the largest international metroplex in the world. It's it's a huge, it's a large area, and so it was really counter 
uh, to what the trends have been nationally as far as um, uh, cities. Uh, most of the cities, larger cities, have abandoned the council manager form and have gone to more of a strong mayor uh, uh, form of government. And so uh, that, that, was, that in itself was intriguing. And then the other thing that was intriguing was it passed. Uh, the voters uh, uh, voted for this incredible change in their uh, form of government. And so we were really curious as far as, first of all, why did they want to change their form uh, uh, from a strong mayor of a big city to a council manager form? And then uh, we were real curious as far as, well, then how did they do it as far as getting the voters to uh, back and, and to pass uh, the um, ballot in which this was placed. And so uh, um, what we found is that the, uh, I, I was asked to investigate and to, uh, to write this article, and I interviewed a number of people in the community, probably 20 different people, including uh, local government uh, officials, um, staff, business people, residents, and things like that. And uh, what uh, the overarching um, reasons as far as why they decided to change was um, uh, the way that uh, they had been, their charter worked under the strong mayor was that they had uh, elections every two years. And as a result, because of all the changes, they actually had seven mayors over a course of 15 years. And, and in strong mayor forum, of course, you know, when the, the mayor is elected, they want to lead. They have certain things that they want to focus on. And what happened was the transitions uh, uh, were um, caused uh, the agendas to change constantly, and nothing ever got done. Uh, there were a lot of projects that needed to be done, and nothing was happening. Uh, also, for the city staff, is that uh, uh, the mayor and the council would go directly to the staff and ask for things to get done in, in their specific districts. And so staff were being pulled in all these different directions uh, as far as uh, 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 all these requests that were coming in. And, uh, and as a result, they were spinning their wheels as well. And so um, uh, what, the, what happened was uh, over the course of time, the business community, the media, um, uh, uh, the uh, residents were becoming very frustrated with the lack of progress in their city. And so um, uh, through the course of the years, they considered having a charter change uh, in, in which they would change the form of government, but uh, um, they thought it was always too daunting and it was too hard to do, and so they decided not to do it. Uh, what happened was uh, 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 the frustration, people just got sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so what happened was uh, 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 a group of candidates ran on the platform of bringing it up and to discuss it, not necessarily to advocate for a change, but to consider it and to let the community decide. And this is what made this process unique because, you know, a change in government is something so drastic. And uh, it's a different message when the change comes from 
the local government who goes to the community and says, folks, we've got to change the form or we have to do this or we have to do that. It's a different message when it comes from their peers. And so what happened was uh, the, uh, uh, the new mayor who actually, I think, deep down liked the strong mayor form, but he also recognized that El Paso was suffering. And so he said that when, if he was elected, he would bring up the issue of the change for the community to discuss and for the community to decide. And so what happened was a uh, community, uh, the community came together, I believe it was the chamber that actually led the uh, discussion. They had a number of community forums, which was very good turnout, actually. And when you have these uh, public forums on a sexy topic of charter revision, you know, you don't expect a lot of people to show up, but they were getting, uh, a, you know, a minimum of 60 people who would show up. And it wasn't the government folks that were doing the presentations. It was the chamber and community residents that were doing the presentations at these forums. And what they were talking about, they weren't advocating for a certain forum, but they were given the different options, and they were giving the pros and cons for those different options. And then the questions and answers and the discussions. Well, what happened was um, the chamber did come out and, uh, before the election, I believe they endorsed a change. Um, the uh, media came out and endorsed a change. And then some of the key uh, uh, community leaders came out and endorsed that change too, and also the university that was there as well. And, uh, uh, it, and it went to ballot. The turnout was low. It was only 8%. But you have to also remember that those 8% are the most fervent um, uh, uh, citizens in that community, the ones that would vote on anything, and for them to come out and then vote and then pass it was something that was pretty unique and something that we were uh, pretty intrigued by. So that was probably the main thing that uh, was very important was the messaging um, that the information was shared with the public, all this different information, uh, the different rationales as far as why this would benefit or why it wouldn't or why this form would and why this one wouldn't. Um, uh, and it wasn't the government that was doing the presentations. It was the, uh, uh, the community folks themselves. And I think that was probably one of the key reasons why it passed. Does that make sense to folks? Yes, thank, thank you very much, Mr. Kobo. I know your time is, you're pressed here, but we have a couple of questions if you don't mind. Mr. Tapia. Sure. And, and they're kind of, uh, kind of hard to hear you. Okay, thanks. Mr. Tapio. Uh, thank you. Um, when I was doing my homework, uh, prior to the meeting, um, I looked up some information about the, um, National Civic League and, and the model charter, and it does look like a very interesting document that I do hope um, our committee has provided a copy of. Um, I think you've done a lot of, um, it looks like you've done a lot of good homework and, and have thought out kind of the process that we may want to consider in uh, deliberating if and, and how to change our city's charter. Um, I did read in, on your website that uh, the preference in the model city charter is the um, manager council form, um, but that you, in the updated version you do talk about the strong mayor system and that you have 
basically presented two options within the strong mayor system. You call it the mayor CAO council and then the mayor council CAO version. And I guess the difference depends on who appoints and who can remove the chief administrative officer. Can you explain mm -hmm. a little more about that? Uh, as far as who appoints and why? Well, one of the things that was a bit learning in El Paso, too, because they have a strong mayor CAO uh, um, uh, form, and in that form that they used to have, the mayor would appoint um, the chief administrative officer. And uh, it wasn't, uh, the council didn't have a say in it, the mayor did it. And so what happened oftentimes was that the, the chief administrative officer was viewed just as a, uh, an extended arm of the mayor. And because of politics, uh, oftentimes the issues became overly political because of the dynamics that the uh, mayors would have with the councils there. Um, what we talk about in, in the um, uh, charter is just you know, the different pros and cons. Uh, the, uh, um, what we say is the preferred approach is where the council and the mayor together appoint the chief administrative officer. officer. And it's, simply, it's really just a human dynamic of, of buy-in. You know, as far as having that say in who that chief administrative officer uh, is, because the chief administrative officer, in order for him or her to be effective, they have to be able to work with all the folks. Um, not much different than an effective uh, city manager would. Has to, uh, he or she has to have a, a, a good relationship, good rapport, and good with dealing with the political aspects and the administrative aspects. So when that buy-in is there as far as who this person is, um, it, it, it seems to be more effective. Now, they have to continue that and continue to work at it, you know, like any relationship, but uh, uh, that's the way that we recommend as far as that appointment. Does that make, did I answer your question? I, I think so. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Hastings. Uh -huh. Um, my question is, um, was there any discussion uh, during the process of um, putting together the plan for the strong mayor to have it be uh, a pilot program for any period of time, like has happened with um, San Diego? Um, I am sorry. I could not hear you well. You were echoing all over the place. I can repeat that question. Okay. Was there, in the model charter that you have, did you describe... Uh, or do you have a preference for or, or any language in there related to a pilot program or pilot period of time, such as the city of San Diego, with their strong mayor? Uh, uh, no, we don't have that language in there. Did, did you have any discussion about that prior to the development of that document? Or in uh, El Paso in general? I, I, to be honest, I cannot remember if we did or not. Uh, as a, a pilot period right. or the city manager? Pilot period. No, for the change to the council yeah. manager form. Like a transition period? Oh, yes, transition for the council manager period. Where the voters yeah, would yeah, go back was, in four yes, years. There was a transition period, and, and in my article I, I talk about 
um, how they um, convened a transition team in order to uh, work on, on, on the specifics as far as what needed to happen. However, one of the other key learnings from the El Paso um, piece was that they, the transition team on some of these things decided, well, we'll let the city manager handle it. And so what happened was when the new city manager who came, who is still there and is a great city manager, he was focusing so much on these transition tasks that she didn't have any, uh, it took a lot of the time that she should have been spending on managing. Um, so what she recommends is that uh, in this transition period that a municipal lawyer be hired to really take a look at the charter to make sure that uh, a, a lot of the different transition pieces, um, the roles and the responsibilities, for instance, um, are very well articulated uh, uh, so that when the change does happen, whether it's a strong mayor or, or whatever, they can come right in and start. Um, uh, things are clearly defined ahead of time rather than having to go through all the process of, of defining those while they're supposed to be leading. Derek, Derek, I think, I think the question was, did the committee consider a sunset where where you would try out a new system for a specific length of time as they're doing in San Diego and then submit it to the voters to continue or go back to where it was? No. Okay. And that wasn't discussed either in the, uh, in the charter revision. Thank you. Okay, are there any other questions? Uh, Oh, Mr. Murphy. Um, you, meant, you mentioned early in your conversation here and your article talks quite a bit about the two-year cycle for the entire council. And I guess whether you can make a judgment how much of this change was driven by the fact the entire organization was turning over every two years as opposed to anything else. I wouldn't say that. I would say that was a key element, um, but it wasn't the sole driver. I think what they were looking at, was how can we be more effective and efficient um, in both our governing and our uh, administration of uh, services and delivery of services. Um, uh, I think that that was definitely a key factor, though. Thank you. And I believe, and I'll have to go back and check, but I believe one of the other charter changes that they looked at was uh, changing uh, the terms and rotating them. I mean, uh, not rotating them, uh, um, how, how they're, uh, you know, like, uh, um, oh, shoot, I just lost the word. Yeah, it but, was. Uh, they, they looked at that change, they only, and it passed. They made some other charter changes as far as terms, I believe. The only thing that didn't uh, pass was uh, increasing the salaries of the council. <laughs> Are there any other comments or questions? Uh, Derek, do you have any closing comments you want to make? This has been very helpful, and we know we're encroaching upon your schedule. Um, just that uh, uh, if one thing that I have learned in working with governments uh, of all sizes all around the country is that uh, 
You know, you can have the greatest form in, in the world, but it won't matter if you don't have uh, good governance practices. And uh, if, if the uh, um, council and mayor uh, aren't communicating or the, the uh, mayor and the staff uh, aren't working well together, and no matter what form it is, it won't work. You know, it won't work well. So a, a lot of this really comes down to uh, the ability to uh, uh, work together um, uh, and to be able to communicate about the tough issues. I mean, when I see communities and governments that struggle, it really comes down to the relationships and the communication and uh, uh, being willing to uh, address these things face to face. So it's just uh, you know, uh, one thing that uh, really needs to be taken into consideration is not just the form, but how you work, too. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. We, we very much appreciate it. Thank you. Good thank luck. <laughs> We're on to um, item number five. Uh, Mark, can you introduce Mr. Moore, please? Sure. Dave Mora was appointed the West Coast Regional Director of the International City-County Management Association, that's ICMA, in February 2009. He's retired from full-time local government management. He retired from full-time local government management in October 2008 after serving for 18 years as the city manager of Salinas, California. Over his 35 years of California local government service, Mr. Mora also served as town manager of Los Gatos, city manager of Oxnard, and in various management positions in the city of Santa Barbara. He was also president of the International Hispanic Network, president of the League of California Cities City Managers Department, and president of ICMA. Mr. Dave Mora. David, it's uh, good to see you again, and uh, welcome. Uh, we thank you very much for taking the time and out of your schedule to be here with us. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I want to thank each of you and the Sacramento community for the opportunity to, to have a conversation with you this evening um, in terms of the very important work that you as committee members are doing. I want to thank you individually for your dedication to the residents of the city of Sacramento because you volunteered or were volunteered uh, for this very important activity uh, in terms of looking at the city, how it operates currently, how it might operate under another form of government. It is really a significant obligation that has been thrust upon you. Uh, and throughout my career, I have always thanked those folks that come forward on committees and commissions and thank those folks that have come forward as elected officials to serve their communities because it is a tremendous undertaking uh, and you will see from the process that whatever you come up with you may not always be thanked uh, for whatever the conclusion is. I want to spend a little time with you this evening talking about a partnership. A partnership that involves the community the residents and the citizens, the folks that they elect, the policymakers who are the direct connection to the community, and the third element, 
the folks that are involved with the day-to-day -day management and administration and implementation of policy. I want to start with a little background in terms of myself and ICMA, a little bit of history, although Derek touched on it a little bit in terms of the council manager form and, and why it got started. The status of the form of government at this time, what I believe are the benefits of the council manager form and why it is a successful form and has the potential to continue to be a success in, in each community. And assuming I'm technologically proficient, I will make this thing move. My timing is wrong. Okay. Is it supposed to show up somewhere else? Ah. I always put this up there. Sometimes it disappears. Uh, <laughs> it was up there. There it is. This is my way of reminding myself who I am. Uh, but as Mark said, I had the privilege of working uh, in local government in, in California for 35 years. And I specifically noted in there that I worked in two communities with directly elected mayors. Each of those mayors, in his or her own way, was a very strong mayor in terms of their individual focus on the community and its needs, the work of those mayors with the council in building a partnership and consensus among the elected officials to chart a direction for the community. And each of those mayors was very strong working with the council in assuring that the staff that was responsible for the implementation of that work was accountable to them because they, as the elected officials, were accountable to the community. I will admit, and based on that, you know, I describe myself as a local government junkie. I'm also an ICMA junkie. And I am because there isn't a better job in terms of public service. When you look at local government, it's where the proverbial rubber meets the road. The elected officials meet their constituents on a daily basis. They can't get away. They can't escape to Sacramento, as our representatives in Monterey County do. They can't escape to Washington. They are here. I believe that's even more of a significant demand on them because that tight community connection and the ability to work on that tight community connection on a daily basis is critical to making local government work. ICMA was founded in 1914 as the professional organization of appointed local government managers. There are about 9,000 members currently working in about 5,600 towns, counties, cities, special districts. The decisions of these folks affect millions of individuals in these various communities on a daily basis. The mission of ICMA is to create excellence in local government management. It is an international perspective. The vast majority of the membership does reside in the United States, but there are growing connections with English-speaking countries and also in non-English-speaking countries uh, with participation in South America, uh, in the Middle East, and in other areas where local government professional management is seen as a way to help local communities. In some of those governments, in some of those areas, it doesn't exist. 
and local government professional managers can bring continuity, uh, consistency, and professionalism to the communities. The origins of ICMA are in the council manager form. The key item that makes ICMA, I believe, and the members of ICMA somewhat special is a code of ethics that speaks to integrity, equity of services, professionalism, accountability, nonpartisan management and administration. Every member of ICMA basically has to sign up for that code of ethics. Those individuals can be monitored and they can be brought to task if there is a violation. And I think the qualities exhibited in the ICMA code of ethics are really critical to making sure that local government managers are professionals. I provided you with a copy of the Code of Ethics and the guidelines associated with them. And as you look at local government management professionals, and as mayor and councils look at the appointment of CAOs or managers, those are the core items that should be evaluated in terms of the credentials that a person can bring to the table in service to a community. A quick history of the council manager form. Really, Derek talked a little bit about this. Uh, it was born out of the turn of the century progressive reform movement. There was a lot of corruption in local government. Tammany Hall is a phrase that probably everyone uh, does have some identification with, not in terms of experience, but history. Reformers were catalysts for local change. The reformers did engage leadership. Derek talked about some of them. They engaged the business sector. And there was a feeling that we had to bring or there had to be in local government a more scientific management approach. It had to be transparent. It had to be accountable. And the National Municipal League, which is now the National Civic League, led this charge against local corruption. I would really recommend that each of you do get a copy of that Model City Charter document because it is an excellent resource to any group that is looking at form of government issues in terms of there are alternatives, and if you do look at alternatives, here are some ways that you might evaluate them. It is an excellent resource. It is reviewed periodically, and I think Derek said the last one was about five years ago. But one of the things you may want to look at when you look at the, uh, uh, the book itself is the diversity of folks that are brought to the table to review the documents. Elected officials from all forms of government, local government professional managers, representatives from constituent groups such as the League of Women Voters. So it's a very diverse group that looks at this document so that they can create a scenario that can be used as a resource to all communities. The current status of council manager government, there is a trend toward council manager government. Now, Derek did point out that in larger cities, that trend seems to be toward strong mayor, depending on the community and depending on the issues. However, if you look at the absolute numbers in terms of local government jurisdictions, cities and counties, the definite trend is toward council manager. Today, more than 92 million people in the United States live in cities and counties operating under council manager or administrator form of government. This is 2009 data uh, that is gathered by ICMA. Uh, it indicates that 49% of uh, the communities 
of 2,500 population or greater uh, operate under a council manager form of government. 43% operate under mayor council, 2% commission, and 5% in town meetings and 1% with representative town meeting. Find that model a lot in the Northeast, uh, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire. Very interesting scenario. There actually are some town managers that work in those forms of government with town meetings where the decisions are made once a year at the town meeting with every resident coming forward to voice his or her opinion. Uh, city councils are easier to work with, I think, than the entire community at one time. <laughs> My biased opinion. Among the 480 incorporated California cities and towns, 445 operate under the council manager form of government. 17 operate under mayor council. And you've already talked about in your discussions some changes. Certainly San Diego is an example that you do want to look at. Uh, you did have Jerry Newfarmer here uh, to comment on changes that he saw. Uh, I think Oakland is an excellent example to be evaluated in terms of the change that it went through, and certainly the Attorney General can give you, uh, you know, his opinions on why the change was made and why it worked for him. Uh, and he might also want to evaluate how it's working now. There are significant benefits to the council manager form of government. And one of the keys is the distinction between the administrative role in the of the manager and the policy role of the chief elected executive. A mayor in a community is, without question, the designated political leader. He or she is the face of the community. Regardless of size, whether it's a community of 2,500 or a community of 500,000, the mayor plays a critical role in his or her community. That individual is the leadership. I mentioned earlier that I believe at the local government level, the responsibilities, the demands on those elected officials in cities is significantly greater than in other levels of government because they do go to the church and the synagogue. They do go to the parks. They do go to the grocery store. And folks meet them on a daily basis. Now, I submit to you that with that responsibility and that direct connection, elected officials have a full-time job. They have a full-time job in terms of community connection and leadership of the community in terms of bringing together the community, charting a course for the community, and that is a full-time job. Very different from assuring professional implementation of the policy and the community demands. I think it is the rare individual that can do both. There may be some. But if you accept my premise that a local elected official has a full-time job in terms of the community connection and working on policy development, I am hard-pressed to see how that individual can also give 100% to full-time day-to-day management. It really is two different responsibilities. So the distinction, basically, is well-served in your council manager form of government because the mayor does serve as the political leader and the face of the community. As I indicated, 
I had the privilege of working in two communities with directly elected mayors, and currently mayors are directly elected in 67% of council manager cities. The benefits of council manager government, political power and responsibility, which is key, is concentrated among the members of the governing body, mayor and council. Policymaking resides with those folks. They are led by the mayor. The elected officials are free to devote time to policy development and planning and connections with the community. Under council manager form, the day-to-day -day operations are managed by trained, nonpartisan, experienced professionals, possessing the know-how to get the job done. These managers are not policymakers. They are not responsible for the community connection. That's the role of the mayor and council. The manager and his or her staff is responsible for working with the elected officials in making sure that that policy direction is implemented on a daily basis throughout the organization and in the community, and they are held accountable for that. There is a very significant distinction, especially in terms of accountability. One of my favorite sayings about my job was that on any given Tuesday, I could get on the short end of a vote. There isn't much more in the way of direct accountability. Elected officials are accountable. However, they do have terms, and generally you do find a continuity uh, of elected officials. But accountability in terms of actually providing services is one of the core features of council-managed government as the manager is held directly accountable by the mayor and city council on a daily basis. The manager, as I said, carries out the policies established by the elected governing body. I heard someone use the term manager council government. Throughout my career, I have insisted that that form does not exist because it doesn't. The partnership is council manager. And I think it is a very significant distinction that has to be made and emphasized because it is the council, the mayor and council that are in charge, and it is the manager who works for them. It's not manager council in any way. There is an emphasis on effective, efficient, and equitable service delivery, and the National Civic League continues to endorse the form, although in their model charter they do look at a series of alternatives. In the traditional council manager form, the Manager is appointed by the governing body and serves for an indefinite term. Derek talked about some differences in the two models of uh, strong mayor form of government, where in one, the mayor would make the appointment, and in the other, the mayor and council would make the appointment. I will tell you from my experience in terms of being a manager, I was accountable to all the elected officials answerable to them. I would have found myself in a very, very difficult position if I would have been appointed by one of the seven members of the council or one of the five members of the council, depending on the size of the council, because I really had a responsibility, and the manager has a responsibility 
to work with each of the council members because each of them is an elected representative. Yes, the mayor is the principal spokesperson. He or she is the face of the community. But each one of those council members is also elected, and each of them represents a constituency. And it is the responsibility of staff to be responsive to each of the council members. Oh, yes, there is the matter of being subject to termination by majority vote of the body at any time. And I reference my every Tuesday experience. The manager is responsible for preparing the budget, presenting it to the governing body. That development is consistent with the direction of the council in terms of the policy direction that is established for the community. The manager has direct responsibility for administration of the budget as approved by the governing body. You know, implementation of a work program and of a, and of a budget really is a full-time job. It, it's not a half-time job. And the person who is responsible for that has to be dedicated to making that work. And I, I will tell you, I was not involved in policymaking. Uh, I was involved in management and administration, and I found it very difficult to have a 40-hour work week. Uh, emphasizing that, because regardless of size of community, implementation of the work program and accountability for that is more than a full-time job. Also under council manager form, the manager does have the full authority for the appointment and removal of at least most of the principal department heads uh, or functions within the city or county. A manager is appointed based on his or her professional experience, managerial qualifications and education, political affiliations are not an influence. I go back to the code of ethics and the items that are emphasized there relative to the values that a professional manager can bring to an organization. Give me a second. I've touched on a little bit about this, but I'm going to reemphasize it. To be successful, every community needs this partnership involving the residents, the policymakers who are elected, and the management that is responsible for implementation. If you want to make sure that a community is successful, that partnership has to exist. There are times when it doesn't exist and things are dysfunctional. But in the perfect world, that partnership has to exist. Every city needs strong, effective political leadership, strong, effective policy development, as well as a focus on execution and results, commitment to transparent and ethical government, and assurance that there is representation and engagement of all segments of the community. If you look at that list of five items, the policy leadership, excuse me, the political leadership, the policy development, and the representation and engagement, I believe, are key full-time jobs for elected representatives. The focus on execution and results, the commitment to transparency and ethical government are also full-time jobs of the staff. Council manager form encompasses a set of professional values, skills, and practices that ensure the success of the counties and cities that use it. 
The CM form of government adds value to the quality of public policy, produces results that matter. It allows for a long-term community-wide perspective that the policymakers put in place and then the manager and the staff can execute. There is a commitment to a set of ethical practices in the service of public values. And if I sound repetitive, I am, because that is very critical to a successful manager and a successful partnership, the values and the ethics that are brought to the table. CM former government provides the best opportunity to build consensus among diverse interests. That's the job of the policymakers, and they can focus on it full time. It promotes equity and fairness, and it can develop and sustain organizational excellence and innovation. Why council manager form of government? I admitted I'm a local government professional junkie and a MyCMA junkie. But when I got into this business and when I meet with my peers as often as I can in my new role, I reemphasize why they got in the business. And that is to serve the interests and the needs of the communities they work in. And they do that best when they have strong, opinionated policymakers who work in their communities to be the community connection and that staff can get that message from the policymakers and implement items on a day-to-day -day basis. Council manager form of government is the form of government that recognizes the critical role of the elected official to focus on community connections. It is the form of government that recognizes the need for day-to-day -day management devoted to the delivery of services. The roles are distinct. They do require full-time attention. How do we know it works? Communities with council manager form do have a very strong track record of performance and accountability. No system is perfect, okay? There are problems that you will find anywhere. However, one of the items that Derek alluded to, I'm pointing to the phone, not uh, <laughs> to Mark, was the All-American Cities Award. This is a fairly prestigious award that many communities uh, try to get. Looked at the last three years, 2007, 8, and 9, and the most recent awards were just uh, given out, I think, last week in Tampa, 22 of the 30 communities recognized in this last three years were council manager forms of government. This is a bit dated, but unfortunately it's the latest that is available. Year 2000 government performance project evaluated 35 U.S. cities with the largest gross revenues. Two cities with the highest overall grades of A and A plus, respectively, were Phoenix, Arizona, and Austin, Texas. Both operate under the council manager form. Six of the lowest scoring cities operate under the mayor council form. It may not always work that way. Cities can change in their standing, but you know, this is a snapshot in terms of an evaluation that was done in the year 2000. Let me bring this to a close. I want to emphasize a couple of things in terms of why I have really enjoyed 35 years of local government work and why I think people in my business do their work. And it is because we have 
this aspiration to work in communities for the residents of the communities through the engagement opportunities provided by the local elected officials. The partnership of community with strong, independent, full-time elected officials and strong professional staff is a partnership that can make for excellent governance in local communities. And when you think about it in terms of forms of government, you can't have that at the state and federal level. It's non-existent because there isn't the community connection. You know, that's the key. Here in Sacramento, city and county, my opportunity to work in Salinas and Oxnard and Los Gatos and Santa Barbara, and if you know California, very different communities that I had the privilege to work in. But the beauty was working with communities where I had strong, dedicated elected officials who were committed to their communities. I am convinced that anyone who runs for office does so with the primary motivation of serving his or her community. Part of the job of the manager is to give that elected official the full range of tools so that the community connection between the residents and the elected officials can come to fruition in terms of the delivery of services. The key aspects of policy and management are separate and distinct. And I will reemphasize that I do believe that regardless of size of community, elected officials are, are held accountable by residents on a full-time basis uh, because of the community connection and the fact that they're on the job 24-7. A manager, a professional manager ascribing to the ICMA Code of Ethics can be instrumental in working with those elected officials in doing the best for a community. In summary, while a good manager will always do his or her best to implement the vision of elected officials efficiently and effectively regardless of the form of government, the council manager form is best structured to facilitate a city's success because it allows the elected officials to work full-time and it allows the management folks to work full-time in their areas of expertise. I don't know of a mayor anywhere in California, I have somewhat limited experience, who basically ran with a platform focused on operation of the municipal government. Generally, our elected officials run on issues of policy in terms of quality of life, in terms of community service, in terms of planning issues. They don't generally run to be the CEO, regardless of size, because that's not the connection to the community. When an elected official, I think, is talking to his or her constituency, it's about quality of life matters that matter to them on a daily basis. It's parks, it's streets, it's public safety. It's not necessarily the day-to-day -day management of the organization. I did provide some additional information that is available to you in terms of frequently asked questions on the CM form. Professional local government management, the benefits, 
a editorial piece, admittedly, on council manager versus strong mayor, the choice is clear, and then very importantly, the code of ethics. I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak to you uh, this evening. Uh, yes, I am an advocate for council manager form of government. I'm an advocate because I think it is the best way to serve the needs of residents. It is not a perfect way because no way is perfect. If you would like some additional information or have follow-up questions after tonight, uh, you have my email address, you have my phone number, and also ICMA can be a resource to you. ICMA has a very active website that you can look at and take a look there in terms of any follow-up that I might not be able to provide. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, thank you for this opportunity. And again, thank you for the fact that you are doing this work for the residents of the city of Sacramento. David, thank you very much for that presentation. We appreciate that uh, very much. We have a couple of questions. Mr. Tapio. Yes, thank you for coming this evening. Um, first, first of all, um, would you provide us with a list of the 17 cities in California that have a mayor council relationship, uh, mayor council structure? Uh, we've looked at a few, you know, in the top 10 largest cities, and we know which ones of those have that structure. But it'd be helpful to see which of the smaller cities, and maybe look to see if there's anything interesting in the way they've set up. I'll get that email to Mark. Uh, That'd be great. Probably Monday or Tuesday. No problem. No problem. Um, and I'm wondering. Um, in those 17 cities in California, um, do most, some, or all have a chief administrative officer? Um, and if so, are they members of your organization? And um, to the extent any of those cities do have chief administrative officers, what is the typical education or work experience of the chief administrative officers in those cities? I'm not sure about current membership. Uh, I do know that Keith Comrie, the former CAO of City of Los Angeles, uh, was an active ICMA member. Uh, I will find out of those 17 cities if any of the CAOs, well, if they have CAOs, uh, and if they are members. The jurisdictions I'm familiar with in terms of uh, strong mayor, uh, City of Los Angeles does have a CAO. Uh, and that individual is responsible directly to the mayor uh, and manages the overall budget staff uh, for that community. Uh, I believe San Diego also has a CEO. In fact, you had him here, or you had some discussion with him. Uh, I'm not sure if the city of San Francisco has a designated CAO or not. I'll try to do some research in terms of those 17 and see what I can find. Dr. Newland? Oh, excuse me. Chris, are you finished? Okay. Dr. Newland? Um, I find that in the cities that I've looked at that have succeeded in the last 50 years that I agree with you. It's a partnership of residents, officials, and the manager. But in Sacramento, where I've lived for 25 years, and which I've been looking at very closely, coming to most council meetings, and a lot of other activities. I think it's essential to add to those three the professionals who work in the city. Uh, for example, in Sacramento, the city attorney, uh, the clerk, 
the auditor, who now reports directly to the council, and the professional staff uh, within the manager's office and out on the ground are exceedingly strong. In short, in Sacramento, it's largely a neighborhood-based, very strong political system. I go daily onto the website for the city, and it announces everything imaginable going on. I'd have to have 55 days every day to participate in all of them, but it's an exceedingly strongly linked system into both neighborhoods and comprehensive activities citywide. And that's facilitated then by another element that's strong. So you notice that I've added uh, to your partnership of residents and elected officials and the manager, particularly emphasizing that council manager government is not just the manager. The manager is a facilitator of professional leadership, both in the central office and coordination of the other political officials like the clerk and so on. But then the other element is the systems. And in Sacramento in particular, I see very strong systems that facilitate my participation at every level, and frankly, the participation of anyone else who wishes to take the time. So I'd recommend ICMA we add these other dimensions, not just those three. And in part, that's because all too often it does appear to people who don't follow it that the manager is the sole leader and administration. The managers that I've observed who have been at all effective are facilitators of everybody else doing the work. Sure, they know how to help others. They know how to get help from others. But I sure appreciate you being here today if you've provided splendid leadership for ICMA, and I welcome your participation. If I might, just a quick comment. You, you can take my presentation in terms of that third element relative to the manager, and that really speaks to professional management throughout the organization, with the manager being the head of it. But you need professional management throughout the organization, as Chet says. Ms. Fuller. Uh, might a city reap the benefits of a professional manager by a strong mayor appointing a, a, a professional manager? I think any community should have the benefit of having strong professional management. And I will say that you know, regardless of form. If I look at the city of Los Angeles, I think it's critical to the operations of that city that they have strong professional managers working in their community. So that in any community, you've got to have that ingredient. Anything else? Oh, Mr. LaFosso. Uh, thank you for uh, appearing before us, Mr. Mora, and I want to say uh, I greatly appreciate your embrace of the big A word, accountability, and the way you structured your presentation. Um, that's a comment. Um, I also appreciate your, your articulation of the role of the elected officials vis-a-vis -vis the professional managers, and I don't know if it's me, but sometime when I find this whole discussion um, occurring, I sense that maybe on the street there's not consensus on what we mean by a lot of the terms we use. So I'll offer an example and maybe get a comment from you. You said, uh, generally speaking, elected officials don't mount their campaigns or run on operations. And then you made a statement that, that it speaks to me 
Um, you know, they run on things that are of local interest like parks, streets, and public safety. I'm not sure the average voter appreciates the difference as to why parks, streets, and public safety, which might relate to police response times or staffing levels, why that's operations or excuse me, policy and not operations. And I'm wondering if you might articulate a little bit more that dichotomy for the, well, for the record. I will attempt for the record. In, in working with mayors and city councils over 35 years, one of the things that I emphasized to them was that they have a couple of very critical decisions to make on an ongoing basis. Uh, perhaps the most critical you know, deal with, not in priority order, a general plan of the community in terms of land use, the operating and capital budgets of a community in terms of the services to be provided, and very importantly, the appointment of the manager uh, or disappointment of the manager. It is through the policymakers and their conversations relative to services that they articulate the priorities of a community in terms of services, in terms of what the investment is going to be made in the police department, in the fire department, in parks, in order to provide certain levels of service. And that's a significant policy consideration that a council makes every year. As they trade off limited resources, how much is going to go to public safety? How much is going to go to streets? You know, how much is going to go to day-to-day -day management in terms of the treasurer, the finance office? Those are, from my perspective as a manager, significant policy decisions made relative to priorities of services. The manager then has a responsibility for translating that into day-to-day -day operations. I, I'm attempting to respond to the question. I, I don't know if I did adequately. I appreciate your answer, and I, it was it was wholly adequate. I'm I'm uh, you can think about yeah, it and send yeah. me an email. <laughs> I, I will do that. I will do that. Okay, appreciate that. Right. Anything? And, and we'll share the copies of the email. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else at this point? David, thank you very much for your time and your effort in making your presentation, your time out of your schedule. We appreciate it very much. The opportunity was great. I do have friends in Sacramento and come up visit sometimes. But, again, thanks to you for the investment of your time that you're making in your community. Good luck to you, as Derek said. Thank you. Mark, I think it would be helpful to the committee if you could get uh, a copy of uh, – Dave Moore's slide presentation, or maybe we have it. I don't know. We will also add that to the website. Okay, that'd be great. Thanks. Okay, we're on to item six, actually item six and seven. Um, members, as you know, we've been discussing the issues of governance, appointments, and budget. Um, so far, spending a lot of time receiving information, talking to people, reading material, and so on. The next two items on our agenda relate to our introduction to the election process. 
Um, and what I'd like to do is have um, our city clerk give us a little introduction, introduce, introduce the subject. And then we have uh, the two items, number six, geared directly to our city process. And then um, our friends from the county have graciously taken time out of their busy schedules on a pre-holiday evening, which we really appreciate, coming to us that will give us some answers um, to some questions that have been raised as to um, changes in the voting system. And, of course, as we all know, the county is responsible for doing that. So, Shirley? Sure. Well, as Chair Edgar stated, uh, these two pieces are companion pieces. Um, we do consolidate our elections with the county, so it is a partnership. Um, the city clerk has certain roles as it relates to elections. Uh, some, of course, is the election code, but it, for our city particularly, we are a charter city, so there are charter elements that go with that. Um, the goal tonight was to explain from the city's perspective the current city election processes and to provide a little bit of the history of what has happened in Sacramento. Stephanie Mazuno is the assistant city clerk that oversees the elections division in the clerk's department and is here to make that presentation. And after her will be the county, will be Jill Levine. Stephanie. Thank you, um, Shirley. Good evening, Chair Edgar and committee members. My name is Stephanie Mizuno. I'm one of Shirley's assistant city clerks. And um, just a little bit of background on myself. You have a bio in your, your materials. I've worked for the city of Sacramento for over 21 years, 11 of those in the city clerk's office. Um, as Shirley said, I, I manage the elections, but I also um, oversee the campaign disclosure, campaign finance, um, and the ethics program, along with other responsibilities. Uh, and my education in, in, is in my bio. So what I would like to um, present today is I heard that we really, it's important to define terms, so I have some terms I'd like to define, and that material uh, is in your package. I want to show a short um, video on instant runoff voting. That is a subject that um, the public has mentioned in testimony to this committee in prior meetings. And um, so I think that will help explain some things. That's going to be in a moment. The overview on how elections are structured today, a brief history, um, some data, which is in your packet, some highlights that I'd like to go over, and then answer any questions. So in regards to terms and terminology, just with the basics, we're starting a new foundation here, and um, you hear the words general and runoff, and those are really used interchangeably. Technically, um, uh, a general election is our second contest, our contest that occurs in November, um, and the process of moving two candidates forward to compete against each other are a runoff, and those words are used interchangeably, and I will use them interchangeably, but technically the general is the election itself. Um, as we consolidate with the statewide, and a runoff is the contest. Um, I also want to talk about majority, just simply a number greater than half of a total. Really is just more than half, so we talk about majority in our election process. We also talk about plurality, and that's the number of votes for a candidate in a contest that is greater than the number of votes for any other candidate, which is just the most votes. So examples of majority and plurality in our process um, our primary elections can be a plurality or a majority. 
Our charter says that um, the voters will select two candidates to move forward to a general election. So that's the two candidates with the most votes. That's a plurality. But the charter also says if one candidate gets a majority of votes, that uh, candidate wins outright in the primary election. So depending on how many candidates and what the situation is, you can have a plurality. That word is always getting me. <laughs> um, a majority or a plurality. Thank you. Our general election is either a plurality and a majority, really. Um, the top two go to a general election, and the one with the most votes wins. But yet, since there's only two candidates, and you do the math, one is going to get a majority. Our special elections are plurality. The most votes win. And typically, when you have a smaller number of candidates, that increases the odds that one person will get a majority. The a larger amount of candidates, when you start splitting votes, there's a, a lower chance for a majority. But you can see from the data that I submitted that that's not always the case. We had instances in 1977 where um, seven candidates ran for mayor and seven candidates ran for District 6, and someone won in the primary, and neither, neither one was the incumbent. So it doesn't always happen. It's the math, but it doesn't always happen practically. And then um, in regards to instant runoff voting, um, and in the city's history, there's proportional, proportional representation. Um, that is a method of voting that redistributes the second choice votes of the lowest ranking candidate, who is then eliminated, to the other candidates. And this process continues until one person receives a majority votes. That's also called ranked choice voting. So I'm going to go ahead, Don, if you could launch that video. Um, the sound is kind of odd. And, um, Don, if you could actually hit that little upper button Here's right how there. Voting works. It combines the first round election and runoff election into just a single election to find a majority winner. I'm candidate A, and I'm B. Let's say we're running against each other, and there are 15 voters. You get eight votes, and I get seven. You have a majority. But let's say someone who agrees with you on most issues joins the race. Huh? Uh, yep. This time I get six votes, you have five, and candidate C winds up with four. Hold on. You're saying I lose? That's right. With old-style plurality voting, the winner doesn't need a majority. So I win, even though most voters would prefer you over me in a two-candidate race. The majority split its vote once the third candidate got in. That's the spoiler effect. That spoiler did me in. Some communities just let the candidate with the plurality of the votes win, even if the majority opposes that candidate. But other jurisdictions hold a whole new runoff election between the top two candidates to find the majority choice. The runoffs cost a lot, and usually have a big drop-off in voter turnout. In a separate runoff election, only the top two candidates would advance. In the runoff, the supporters of candidate C would have to change their vote to A or B. Instant runoff voting accomplishes the same thing without the need for a whole new election. Voters still just have one vote, but can rank more than one candidate in order of preference. You use the rankings on the ballots to determine a winner, like a runoff election, but instantly. I'm liking this, eh? I think. You should be. This voter has marked our young opponent as her first choice, and you as her second. After adding up the first choices from all the ballots, there's no majority winner, and our opponent is in last place. But the people who rank C first haven't wasted their votes. Instead of a whole separate runoff election between the top two, we count all the ballots again in the instant runoff. And people who rank C first 
have their ballots added to the totals of their next choice. Back to eight votes for me. Now you have a majority, so you're the winner. With old-style plurality voting, the majority split its votes and let me slip in. But with IRB, voters wind up electing someone who more closely matches their preferences, no one has to worry about spoilers, and the winner is the one we should have had all along. Me? Of course. You know this is just pretend, right? Instant runoff voting. Majority winners, full voter choice, and one round of voting. Or something like that. Thank you. Um, very simplistic characters, but uh, it really does, I think, illustrate um, the situation we have, um, what proponents of instant runoff voting would suggest would be um, a good alternative. So I wanted to just lay the, the groundwork for that. That's from fairvote.com, so that's available online. So then how are our city elections structured today? Uh, I think that's common knowledge, but let's go over the basics. Um, we have eight council members elected by district, a mayor elected um, at large from the city. Terms are four years. Even in odd districts are staggered, and the mayor runs with even districts. Elections are consolidated with the California statewide primary and general elections. And the charter, again, as I noted, um, suggests that the top two vote receivers um, of the contest proceed to a general or runoff election, unless, of course, one candidate gets a majority of vote and they win outright in the primary. Um, and then successful candidates commence office, and people are always interested about the rule on this, is the fourth Tuesday after the first Monday in November, but what it really is is just 21 days after the election. Um, and I'll, that is actually a little problematic. Um, I'm not sure when I go over history, you'll see this, that um, there was thorough thought on the um, manner of taking office in that it takes time to canvas. So really, taking office is really the period of time that allows the canvas. But when the city went to um, consolidation, with the statewide, we then have to follow the higher jurisdictional rules, and that's 28 days. So a perfect example of why that doesn't work was just what happened um, last year. Um, our even districts won outright in the primary, but our mayoral race went to a runoff in November, and we didn't have the results in time for that election to be able to swear in um, under our charter regulations. So our even district office holders were sworn in, and then when we got the results, um, the mayor was sworn in a week later. Now, knowing that we had unprecedented voter registration increases, it was a presidential election, the, the uh, mailed-in or vote-early ballots were just extraordinarily high, um, but I think you, we can probably expect that more often, and we really need to look for timing that fits better to a consolidated election process. Now, what about just vacancies? Um, in our charter, um, an office become, when an office becomes vacant, and there is less than one year remaining on the term from the date of the general election, the vacancy can be filled by appointment. We saw this process when um, Mayor Cerna passed, and um, it would be from the general election in November to the November of the prior year. He basically passed on the day, and there was an analysis about how you do the count, and the council passed a resolution to officially determine that he passed away one day within that year and they had to make an appointment. Anything longer than that requires a special election. And then when it's determined that we have a vacancy, we have to call an election within 14 days, and um, the um, uh, successful candidate takes office as soon as the election results are certified. 
So um, that's how we are structured today. Now, administratively, the city contracts with the County of Sacramento for election services. The city manages the front end of the process, things like the reports to council, legal noticing, um, the candidate papers, candidate filings, campaign finance, disclosure, measures, arguments, rebuttals. Our office administers, collects, and manages all that information and then turns all of that over to the county. Um, the county prepares the sample and official ballots, um, sets up the polling places, handles the canvas, and does other legal noticing. Um, really, the city just does not have the expertise or resources to do that second half of the process, um, and it works well for us. So we, uh, we definitely would see that that would continue with any kind of, of change that could possibly occur. Now, let's take a little bit of look at the history here. You have that in two forms, uh, a textual form and kind of a linear timeline form. I'm going to take a look at the timeline. That seems to work better for, for me. Um, this timeline um, along the top of this timetable, and it's in the supplemental materials. It's marked 6-1 and what was handed around and set there for you. This timeline around the top um, is elections, where the people came forward to vote. Um, the bottom is um, voting for candidates. But this is really charter changes along the top. And those items in blue, the larger boxes, are substantial changes to um, the process in the city of Sacramento. And it goes from 1920 to current. So just briefly, um, in 1920, we know that the citizens adopted a council manager form of government. We had nine at-large members at the time. Um, the mayor was selected by the seated membership. The term length was two years. There was just one general election, and um, they started in 21 days after the election. Now, the next two are not city elections, but they are important things. Um, shortly thereafter, the California Supreme Court ruled proportional voting or the ranked choice. It could be different today than it was back then, but, but the main um, basis behind it, unconstitutional. And then 10 years later, there was a state ballot proposition that would allow charter cities to adopt any type of proportional voting system that they chose. I couldn't actually find the um, results on that, only that it was on the ballot. Um, but five years later, the citizens of Sacramento voted to abolish the system of proportional voting. So whatever happened, um, and Chet, you might know, <laughs> um, you have more history um, in political science than I do. Mine's just observational, um, what exactly happened there. But we do know a couple of years later, the citizens came back and actually voted to elect their council members by um, plurality. So the top nine at large with the most votes. Then it was quite a long time before really anything else happened substantially, about 30 years in 1970. Um, we went to the system that we have today. Really the only difference is, is that the elections were in odd years in September and November. Um, and then there were two opportunities in the late 70s and 1980 where uh, the citizens were asked to change the time for when the term started. First they shortened it and then they lengthened it back up to, to 21 days. I suspect that had to do with the canvassing process. I'm not really sure why else they would do that. Then in 1989, the vote to actually move the elections from odd to even years in consolidation with the statewide primary and general election occurred. Um, we had an election a few years later in order to get from the odd to even cycle, and um, that's what we have today. So th the last item I have on here I think that's of importance is in 2002 there was a charter change to make the mayor full-time, and it created a charter commission, um, excuse me, compensation commission, 
where uh, that commission was responsible for establishing the pay for the mayor and the council, as well as boards and commissions. So we've kind of gone through a cycle of proportional plurality and, and uh, at-large and districts, and that's where we land today. Now from that, um, I want to go into the history data that was provided in your packet. Um, just to really cover some highlights. <clears throat> Frankly, you could slice and dice this and interpret it in a lot of ways. Um, again, I only really have observational um, uh, perspective to present. But basically what we have here going across this chart is um, we have elections. I provided information on three elections before we went to districts um, at the nine at-large seats, the office, the number of candidates that ran in that election, the number of incumbents that were re-elected, uh, who was successful, because sometimes the successful candidate and who was the incumbent gives an insight into um, maybe turnout or things that happened um, following that. Voter registration, turnout and turnout percentage and cost, as well as just throwing in measures there on the end because measures have a little bit to do with cost. I think the highlights that you can take from this um, is a couple of things. We have turnout and cost particularly. In turnout, what we can um, see from this is that um, when we were having elections in odd years, typically the turnout was in the teens, 20s, 30s, and 40% turnout at the highest. I don't really count 1971 when all the districts were on, about, on the ballot. We had a really big turnout. It was a change in the process. So I kind of put that one to the side when I talk about low turnout. Um, However, surprisingly, our second largest turnout since districts was a runoff in 1973 with Arbornette Miller. He got 63.3% turnout in that election. That's our second highest turnout. Now, when we went to even districts, um, starting in 1992, that turnout changed, I think, for the obvious reasons. You're on a, a ballot that has the gubernatorial or the presidential primaries in general. There are more contests, more jurisdictions on the ballot. We saw 30, 40, 50, and sometimes 60 percent um, turnouts in different districts, um, not necessarily citywide. But I, it, I think it goes to show that, that some districts are definitely more devoted <laughs> to their candidacy, and runoffs tend to bring out a lot more people. But either way, runoffs have always really been in November, and, and you have a high, lot, a high number of people turning out in November anyway. Um, our actual highest turnout was just this last November in the mayoral runoff um, with 73.8%. Uh, um, but, of course, we had a um, very um, interesting um, and highly turned out presidential election, as well as an interesting contest for our mayoral race. So, so we obviously had a high turnout with that. Um, lowest turnout, interestingly, tends to be, but not always, um, those districts where an incumbent runs with no opponent. We actually saw Terry Castanis run in, let's see, 1985 with no opponent, and it was a 4.2% turnout in District 7. But then on the other hand, in 1998, um, a little more than 10 years later, in District 7, Robbie Waters had no opponent, but the turnout was 50.7%. So it really has to do, I think, with the district and the people and what's going on at the time. Um, bottom line, we know that you get more turnout on even years, um, which then directly results to the proportion of costs. The more contests on the ballot, the higher jurisdiction on the ballot, the lower jurisdictions ultimately pay less. So when we were out there by ourselves, 
we were the highest jurisdiction, we paid the lion's share of the cost. Um, when we are a smaller jurisdiction, we get the economies of scale, we pay less of the cost. Um, when you start out, basically with district elections in odd years, at the height of the cost in 1987, it was $221,000 for a particular election. After we switched to even districts, that decreased more than half to $101,000 for an election. It's taken 16 years since we turned to even elections to get back up to the current levels of cost when we were in odd years, and our most recent election was up to $237,000. Now, of course, we know voter registration went way up, and, and a measure, you throw a measure in there, that adds a couple thousand dollars. But um, um, undoubtedly, um, um, our costs are increasing. The county just actually had a cost increase for 2008. So we actually had kind of a substantial increase just on um, cost of services. But then again, we can't, we can't really get the services cheaper any other way. Um, in a little other points of information in here is incumbent turnover. Um, we've actually had high years, about four years of, of high turnover and about five different years of no turnover. So um, I think it really has to do a lot with who's on the ballot, what's happening. Um, again, you can slice it and dice it anyway. I'm just an observer. Maybe the professionals can, can put, pinpoint why that happens. Um, we've had some special elections resulting from vacancies. Um, really, it's a council member either running for a mayoral seat or running for an assembly seat where um, they cannot run for their own seat, um, and um, they've been replaced. So... Getting back to um, some of the public testimony that was brought before this committee in regards to instant runoff voting and whether we need um, runoffs, well, I figured, well, we need to take a look at the history of runoffs to decide uh, what the relevance of that is. So if we look at that data, um, we've had 19 elections since that 1971 election, um, and there have been 14 um, runoff elections from that, which is 73%. So that's either been of one office or more at any given time. Um, the uh, data that you have in front of you shows the different offices, how many times they've faced a runoff, and what percentage of the time those offices have faced a runoff. Actually, the highest, 60% uh, in District 2 and 3, 50% in the mayoral seat, and then everything really drops off sharply after that. Um, who knows? <laughs> um, it's the people, it's the process, it's how the mayor turns over or what, what happens. Um, again, that's left for, for the professional political scientist. Um, so let's take a look real quick at will um, the assumption that if we have instant runoffs, will that save us money? On face, it may. Um, starting in 2008, if you move backwards and you look at the cost of the runoff elections, what you have is, is $200,000, $78,000, $1946, $52,000 over a period of time. That's about $400,000. Um, but that's on the face. It doesn't take into consideration if a change in process um, would cost differently in regards to software administration. It's just on its face. Uh, if we didn't have those elections, those costs would not be spent. Now, with costs, it's important to realize, well, there's a budget behind that. And it is important to point out that um, our election budget is $171,000 per fiscal year. If we have any savings, it is not carried forward. Um, it is grossly underfunded, <laughs> especially now it's grossly underfunded. 
Last year, we had to tap into the campaign reform fund budget in order to pay for the shortfalls in the election costs, and it was a total shortfall last year of over $95,000. Um, fortunately, although we did have some candidates um, elect to accept campaign finance, um, none of those candidates qualified. I think they accepted on purpose, not necessarily that they truly were going to get into serious fundraising. So um, um, that, that is an issue in regards to the availability of funds. So really that is my presentation. I think it kind of sets a foundation of where we've been and where we are. And um, I'm happy to entertain any questions. Stephanie, that was wonderful. That was a great summary of, of what, where we are and what we've done as a city and, and some statistics. Uh, we very much appreciate the work. It was You're obviously welcome. a lot of work and, and uh, to put <laughs> that together. I've been busy the last few weeks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You sure have, and we okay. appreciate it very much. Okay. You're welcome. Uh, Ms. Hastings. And uh, relates to with the instant runoff voting, um, what costs would be specifically associated with that? Because it, it would be a different type of ballot. Would it be counted differently? And could you speak to what that potential cost might be? Um, thank you for that question, and actually that is why we have the county here today um, who's going to be prepared to address that, so um, it'll be just a moment. Uh, could I ask a question that, that you indicated in your little timeline yeah. that the issue of proportional voting was uh, Supreme Court ruled in 1922 that that was unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. Is that still operative today? Very good question, and um, I actually don't know the answer to that. I would suspect no, considering, um, and anyone who wants to speak behind me can correct me, considering we have San Francisco going that direction, we have Berkeley going that direction. Well, there must have been some there, uh, subsequent right. uh, decision. Is that right, Matt? I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> And, and I think that, um, right. <laughs> Sorry. Being, being, being at the observation level of the data that we have and what's available and that that happened long ago, but um, I think practically speaking, and I'll try to fill for Matt while he's looking, um, it's happening. Even the legislature just recently um, adopted a pilot program for up to 10 cities and counties to consider um, instant runoff proportional system. So, so obviously... Um, it has to have been, <laughs> or we wouldn't be going in the direction of the legislature, wouldn't be doing what they're doing right now. So I, I'm sure we can probably find exactly when. Well, I don't know close. what the legislature is doing these days. I, well, <coughs> or what they know. did before, maybe. But it's a very good question, and it was one that I couldn't find um, while I was looking. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, that you want to do the county and come back, Matt, while you're looking, or do you have an answer? Oh, no. Okay. Okay, great. I, I can also Go let ahead. you know that at your next meeting on July 20th, we'll have a gentleman that represents the New America Foundation who will touch on San Francisco's experience. It's my understanding that they've been using this the ranked choice voting, which is another term for instant runoff voting for about five years, that may be fewer elections, uh, but for approximately five years. And the county of Alameda, uh, along with a city or two, uh, is in line to be certified by the state for the November 2010 ballot. So they're gearing up and we 
are working uh, potentially on receiving some testimony and, and presentation from the Registrar of Voters from Alameda County on July 20th as well. Thanks, Mark. Okay. okay, at this time, it's time for the second half of this presentation, which is the background in the current county election processes, as well as a discussion on what it would take in terms to answer Cecily's question, um, instant runoff, and all that goes with that. So I'll turn it over then to Jill Levine, the Registrar of Voters. Thank you very much. Just one moment. I brought you more information. I knew you wanted something to read over this weekend. <laughs> oh, thank you very much for this opportunity. Uh, and I'm pleased to be here tonight. Um, well, kind of pleased, you know, I would rather. <laughs> anyway, uh, with me tonight I have Alice Jarbo. She's our assistant registrar of voters. And we're going to kind of split this up so she can handle the first part, kind of the county's role. And then I'll come back on and talk about the instant runoff voting. Now, we're handing out some packets of information, and I've put little sticky tags on them so you, we can kind of follow along in case we get lost here. And I know that we've already sent you some information uh, down. I imagine you've gotten it. We've got, we sent down a candidate's guide, and that's a book we put together for every single election where there's candidates on the ballot. And it really helps them understand what their role is, what the important deadlines are, you know, that type of thing. We also sent you a precinct officer's manual. We have to train precinct officers for each election, so we gave you a copy of some of the things that we cover in our training class. And then we sent you a copy of the fee schedule that is um, updated every two years. So I'm going to turn the time over now to Alice and let her talk a little bit about Sacramento County's role. Thank you for sharing, Jill. Jill is much better at presenting than I am, so you'll have to bear with me if I stutter or get lost here. Um, I'll be referring, or my portion is item one. That you should have a little sticky on this document. This is our Bible that we use for tracking election tasks. This was from the November 08 election, and it starts at the very beginning and ends at the end of the election. And you. You can see we start about, well, it says 199 to 109 days before the election. And then we end about 100 days after the election. Um, there's, there's so many things involved in running an election that if we don't write it down and document why we need to do it, it won't get done and we'll miss it. So. So my understanding was I was supposed to make the presentation on the county's role in the election process. So let me go over what the county office does. Um, using our registration system, our EIMS system, that controls our entire election system from voter registration activities, petitions, uh, whether it's a nomination petition or an initiative or a recall petition, all of our districting, whether it's mapping or reporting or creating new districts, adjusting lines, uh, creating areas within districts. All of our precincting, um, we're coming up on redistricting. That'll be a huge two or three year task. Um, outreach so that people know they are entitled to register to vote and that they know how to use the system. And then of course election setup. Um, 
course, we do the general office. We make sure we have all of our contracts in place following all the contracting rules, security for the office and all of the systems, the equipment. Um, we have, of course, our purchasing and also all of our billing out to all of the districts in the cities. We do year-round polling places. Um, polling places and what we can use as a polling place has gotten very tight with the ADA laws. Um, so we do year-round surveying. Um, we also attempt to find new facilities that we can use for special elections that pop up like this May election. You think that we may be able to get any facility any time, but actually the major elections, the even-year elections, we have those facilities two to three years ahead of time. Um, precinct officers, we do year-round uh, recruiting for precinct officers. Um, hiring, staffing, training. Um, uh, we do the payroll for all of the election staff, the, the precinct. We could have thousands of people and we have to pay them all. Uh, of course, we also follow up on any incidents at the polls, whether it's something the precinct officer did or something they had to deal with. Um, and then we also um, critique everything that happened at the polls and move on. Election laws. Um, Elections have gotten very popular with legislators, and they are changing the laws very fast all the time. And so for us to say in compliance with the laws, we are continuously tracking the law, all the legislation. Um, we're working with our other um, 57 counties to uh, develop procedures and best practices on implementing those the late changes. So those are just general things that we do year-round. For election-specific and getting into this calendar more, um, we do noticing. that The city helps us out in a great deal with all the candidate filing. So that, that takes a burden off of our hands, but we still have all of the other the school districts and the water districts and the fire districts. So we still have a lot of what your city clerk does, we also do for the other districts. So all of the noticing uh, candidates and measure filing, we, we start very early to get our voting supplies together, our voting materials, sample ballot pamphlets, official ballots, uh, vote-by-mail application, all of our vote-by-mail supplies, whether it's outgoing envelopes, return envelopes, inserts, um, I voted stubs for our vote-by-mail voters. We have precincts and materials, so we have to set, establish specific um, precincts for the election. Those will change every election depending on what's on the election. And then we have to find a polling place that's accessible within that precinct. Um, we have to have, we have to staff. Uh, we'll staff um, four to five people. Has to, we attempt to get bilingual for every polling place. Um, you have all of the paperwork, all of the supplies, you have roster books that have to be specific to the polling place. Of course, you have ballots that have to be set up, and you have all the equipment that has to be programmed. But um, we actually went to rolling suitcases for all of the supplies. It, it's just incredible. that We call them precinct kits, and they're actually they're so large you couldn't carry them on the, uh, an airplane because they're so big with equipment. With, and that's not even equipment. That's just pencils and pens and forms and all of the posters you have to put out and all the signs that, that tell you where your, your polling place is. 
The voting equipment, um, if you remember, the Help America Vote Act uh, did sweeping changes. Um, that and California both eliminated the pre-scored punch card voting, which is what we used to use. So in 2004, we switched to an optical scan, um, electronic, uh, well, a scanner. So it's not the touchscreen system. It's actually a paper ballot system. In order to be compliant with both the state law and the federal law. In 2005, we added the accessible unit, uh, voter assist terminal. It's the automark. So our system is, is a, a two-pronged system. It's the paper scanner, the paper ballot with the precinct scanner, and also the automark voter assist terminal. We have uh, a thousand of each of those, and we could use 700, 750 of those each in any election, any large election. You have to get each one of those down out of our warehouse. You have to program it specifically for the precinct it's going to be in. You have to test the programming. You have to buy test ballots. You have to mark the test ballots. You have to run them through each and every machine. You have to validate that it was good to go. You lock it down. You secure it. You put it in a secure racking area, ready to be delivered in time for the election. So that's a huge area. Um, the current Secretary of State is very concerned with security. So everybody in the state has really had to amp up the security. So we've got multi-levels of security in our facility, plus all of the equipment has got, it's not tamper-proof. Obviously, everything can be tampered with, but it's tamper-evident. So at least we know something has gone wrong with it, and we can swap out the equipment. The other, the other challenging things we have are confidential voters, which are people who may have um, domestic violence, that type of thing. They may be stalked. And so we have to track these people, but they don't belong, they don't exist on our books. So that's a, a, a paperwork and accounting challenge for us after the election during the canvas, because they're not on the file, and we have to really remember and add and subtract the right numbers. Uh, military voters have been challenging for us because there are so many uh, different areas now that our military are at. And we need to make sure, starting six days before the election, they get everything they need to vote, and they have a right to do that. Um, and then, of course, ballot counting. Uh, absentee ballots, or excuse me, vote-by-mail ballots can start 10 days before the election. We can start processing, opening the validated envelopes, uh, getting the ballots ready to count and get them in there, get them counted. Election night, those will be the first results you see shortly after 8 o'clock. Um, the nice thing with the precinct scanners is they have a little data card in them. Those come back to us. We can get those upload, that data uploaded immediately. And I think the results have come in quite a bit faster once we move to the um, optical scan voting. So that's part of the election. The other part of the election is all of the people that it takes to run the election. We've got um, four, we have four phone banks election day. We have our vote by mail phone bank. That actually starts 29 days before the election. And then about a week before the election, we do our main voter phone bank. We'll have 30 people, 35 people on election day answering phones 
for voters that are lost, can't remember what, where they're registered. We have a phone bank designated just for precincts and poll, uh, poll officers. And then we have a phone bank that is a new phone bank for us since we went to this system that's a technical phone bank for anyone. We, we've set rovers out, technical rovers out. We've got about 20 teams of these people out there. And they are just going to all the polling places on Election Day to make sure that if there's any technical problems, they're there to resolve it immediately so the voters are not delayed in voting. So we have a phone bank just for them. Um, then we have uh, equipment delivery, supplies delivery, starting the week before the election. We have, it takes about three days. We hire a company to come in. It's a drayage company that delivered the voting booths and the auto mark. And we have precinct training that where they pick up and the, the, actually the Friday before or Saturday before the election, the precinct officers will come in and pick up their ballots and their scanner unit. Um, election day, when everything is done and the poll workers are done and they're closing out, everything, everybody's happy because they all balance and all the paperwork and forms are done, they will be assigned to go to one of six drop-off sites in the county. Of course, our office is a drop-off site. Then we have them down in Elk Grove, Orangeville, Natomas, all over. They will go give the voting material to um, ballot transporters that expedite delivery to our office and give all the materials that they have in their car to another crew that then loads it on to um, big rigs, big truck, and those once those are full, they come back to us at election night about midnight. But the ballot transporters are doing uh, round robins. As, so they're getting us the voting materials so we can get the results out quickly. Um, so then election night done, we got everything tabulated, we're all happy, we lock up, we go home. Uh, that's probably about 3 o'clock in the morning <laughs> after starting at 5 o'clock the morning before. Then the next day, right away, by 7.30, 8 o'clock, we start the canvas. We have 28 days to complete the canvas. You have to sort through all the material that came back, make sure you have everything. Um, you need to double-check the results. Uh, the requirement is a 1% manual tally, so we need to randomly select 1% of the precincts and manually tally those precincts and make sure it matches the uh, the scanner counts, and also uh, the central scanner. I'm, I missed the point that uh, vote-by-mail ballots are counted on high-speed scanners that we have in the office. They're not counted on the precinct scanner. So we have a variety of different checks we need to do. The Secretary of State has implemented a new um, PEMT, and that just went right out of my hand. Thank you. <laughs> Post-election manual tally. While it's after the election day, it still needs to be conducted within the 28-day canvas. And this is to double-check any races that are within a half a percent of winning or losing. So, And then once the results are done and we're certified and out, we then have the, the cleanup to do. We have to re-warehouse everything that we took out to the precincts. Um, so the 700, 750 items, they all need to be cleaned up, put away. All of the voting booths need to be verified, checked, cleaned, and put away. It's surprising um, the amount of graffiti 
and leftover pencils and pens and vote for me stickers that are all over the booths at the end of the election. So, and that takes several months for a major election. It can take several months. Uh, the other thing, the very well, this this thing happens throughout all of it is media and communications. We are always uh, providing media and information to anyone who wants it. Updates if we we're having a challenge, like we did in February 2008, uh, where our ballots and our precinct scanners didn't want to work together. We do a media blitz on that. We make sure the media knows what's going on. We make sure everyone knows what's going on. Any changes that might be happening, we make sure they know what's going on. So, did I cover everything? Okay. That's election. <laughs> That's about a 200, 250 day process for us. So, there we go. Thanks very much. You're Thank the, you. Obviously, a lot of work, and we appreciate your. You're uh, helping out with that presentation. Thanks. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. As Alice was telling you, we clean out the voting booth, and the strangest things are found in the voting booth. And I can tell you, so far, what tops my number one list are chicken bones. Okay. So somebody must have been eating and decided voting that just to leave his chicken bones in the voting booth. So all kinds of strange things, like you say. Um, I have a couple of other things that we've put on in your packets. And the second thing, which is tag number two, is just a list of um, basically the registration of the city and the different districts. And you can definitely tell that uh, 10 years ago, when, or after the last census, when we divided them all up and made them all equal, things have changed. People have moved because District 1 has 444,000 I mean, voters in the district, and District 2 only has 17,000, so it's definitely time to uh, realign those. And I gave you this only because when we talk about election cost, it's usually because of the number of voters, and you can definitely see from one district to another there are different numbers. Um, handout number three, which is the long chart, I think Stephanie and I had kind of the same idea. We were looking at past history of how often you you know, the city really did go to a, a runoff election. So I have put those numbers on the chart. I think it's very close to what Stephanie presented. It's just in a little bit different format because that's the way my brain thinks. So just to let you know that that is there also. Um, so moving on for instant runoff, uh, as Stephanie mentioned, it was, you know, Depending, a runoff really depends on the number of candidates, who's running, are they in the incumbents, has something happened that just cause, causes the people to, you know, turn out or not turn out. And uh, I'm very grateful that there wasn't an instant runoff voting for the governor's recall election back in 2003 because with 135 candidates, we would still probably be trying to sort <laughs> and do all the rotations. So, yeah, that was great. Um, so instant runoff voting. So I'm going to talk about just a little bit from an implementation point of view because instant runoff is not instant results, and you've got to make sure that they understand that particular piece first. So while you may not have the second election, you will not have results election night because election night you still have all the other ballots that come in, the vote-by-mail ballots, the provisional ballots, and like Alice was talking about, the 28-day canvas. 
You cannot start assigning or reassigning the numbers of the lowest candidate, like that little guy C, until you have counted all the ballots that are in the office or have been turned in and are, are, are viable votes. So until all of that is done, you do not know who is the winner. So there will not be an instant result. Um, in implementing Sacramento County right now, we use a precinct-based system where we have a, an um, optical scanner at each polling place and an auto mark, which is a unit that is used for those voters with disabilities. However, with an instant runoff, you cannot, you, you'll have to take the precinct results and take them all back. Now, you'd have to do that with a regular, you know, any election, you know, to make sure you tally them all up. But what we do because we have a lot of people that question and they want this transparency in elections. We actually put a tape at each polling place, so after the election is over with, ballots have been run through the scanner, we have an, a result tape. We post that at each polling place election night. We do have people that run around from polling place to polling place and add up the votes. They're not going to get the results of instant runoff because they won't have who the second place, third place, and be able to do all of the uh, the rounds or, you know, the different ch um, changes. So that, that would maybe be a little difficult. The other thing that I have a concern about is that a lot of the candidates use our results precinct by precinct for their, you know, for their next election. They want to know what was the turnout in this precinct, how did they vote, that type of thing. And I'm not sure exactly how an instant runoff report is going to look. This is something you're going to have to ask John Arntz from San Francisco, how that is going to look so the candidates will know how to use that statement of the vote for the next election. Um, so while you can tabulate at the precinct level, everything has to come back and be centrally counted. And that does slow down the process, as Alice was talking. When you can tabulate at the precinct, things get downloaded a lot faster. Um, now, Quite often when you're talking about instant runoff, one of the things, a good example that they use is a pizza. You know, you've got ten people, they all want to order a pizza, so you say, okay, what's everybody's first choice? Nobody agrees, so what's everybody's second choice? And so you finally get a consensus, and then you can order your pizza. But with instant runoff, sometimes you don't, it's not an obvious answer. And I've given you handout number four. It's a little chart, and it's, um, there are 28 voters. There's four candidates, and you can see that ten people voted for, you know, which, in, in, in which order. And then looking at the chart, if I was just had election results in my hand, I would go, my goodness, you know, look at C. C come in second with ten votes, you know, second place with the ten votes, and it came in first with the other three and the five. However, because of the way the system rearranges by the lowest going, you know, redistributing the votes, M is actually the winner in this case. So that is something you'd have to be really careful not to jump to any conclusions and looking at the results of an instant runoff. And, you know, I'm sorry, the media sometimes likes to have an immediate answer, and you won't have that right away. You, you will have to wait till all the votes are in. So just, just an example, sometimes it's not as easy as ABC, and it really depends on what type you use, whether you're going to rank all candidates or only the top three candidates. So, like I say, there's a lot of different ways to do instant runoff. So right now in California... Jill, I'm not, I'm not sure how that works. How, that's, how this one works? Yeah, how do you do that chart? Okay, I'll walk you through it. So right now... Where did my paper go? 
in the beginning first round, G has 10 votes. C has 8. M has 6. And P has 4. So since P is the lowest vote getter, we now cancel P's votes and we assign because they're not going to win. So we take the M, which is in second place, and reassign the M votes. So now M has four more, which gives them ten. Are you with me still? P's out. Yeah, okay. okay. I see how it works now. So the second Thanks. place winner is now M. M's votes gets reassigned. So now we have ten votes for G, ten votes for M. So now C is out, and you redistribute the votes for C, which G's votes goes to G, so he gets more, three more, so he gets 13. Now, the five votes that C had, or that the second place was P, P's no longer in the contest, they're out, so the five votes for M go back to M, so you have 15 votes for M. Okay, I see. So, and you may only want to rank the top three. Now, there's all kinds of options, and like I say, it depends on how you write the rules. So where is it being used? San Francisco in California is the one that is using it right now. The voters actually passed the resolution. It went into effect. They tried it in 2004. But each time they do it, they have to get a one-time conditional approval from the Secretary of State because there is no federally or state-approved system for instant runoff voting. They also use a Sequoia system. Now, we use, Sacramento County has bought and we've used the ES&S voting system. There are differences in it, and I think I can explain that in just a little bit. Alameda County has now also passed uh, the resolution, and three cities have kind of said, yeah, we're interested in doing this. But they stated in their, whatever their ballot measure or resolution, that basically they wouldn't do it until there was equipment ready to do it. Alameda County also has the Sequoia system. Um, we, with ES&S, is not, it's not there yet for the instant runoff. Sequoia is actually going through some federal testing now. So, but it has not passed the federal testing. So at this time, there is no, there is no IRV system that is federally certified. And in California, there is no IRV system that has met California certification requirements. But like I say, Sequoia is in testing. I have heard rumors that ES&S might be, but I, I could not confirm that before today's meeting. So like I say, every time San Francisco used this system, they had to go to the Secretary of State, get a one-time conditional approval, test it, and then they could use it. Because it is not a certified system, there are no codes in the election code book in California that handle an IRV system. So if you are going to go that direction, like San Francisco did, their Prop A is quite lengthy because it spells out exactly how they want this process to go. Like I said, there's many different variations on it, so you'll have to, you know, that would be something you'd have to look at. Um, there are no, also, no recount uh, provisions. So if you had to go to a recount for an IRV, there's nothing in the code book on that. And as Alice was talking about the PEMT, the post-election manual tally, there's nothing in code that addresses the, uh, how you would handle that with an IRV. Now to get to the question of cost. 
So there's different ways to run this, um, and I'm not sure which way, and I, I you know, kind of keep an open mind that maybe you would want to take over elections and do your own IRV system, or maybe you would like Sacramento County to take over that system, and when the when our system is ready to go, or maybe wait till then. So I'm going to throw out some numbers and some ideas and kind of let you go with that. But I will tell you that in November of 2008, Pierce County, Washington, their voters decided they wanted this. And luckily for them, I don't know, they had the two systems going. They actually had two ballots, one that the voters had to rank their choices on and one the voters just filled in the one bubble on. So they had, very confusing, I can tell you voters were going, okay, which, which one do I rank on, which one do I do what on? They have close to 400,000 registered voters. Sacramento County has about 200,000, so to keep this in comparison. Voter education cost. They did speakers, billboards, public service announcements, um, you name it. And their cost for just the outreach was $137,000 for that one election. San Francisco, the first time they went out and did to introduce this system, their outreach cost was close to 400000 Now, they have over 400,000 voters, but they also have multiple languages, and that's where a lot of their costs came in. And I wouldn't short outreach because even after we were looking at our new system when we changed from our punch card to our fill-in-the-bubble, after five major elections, we still had voters punching out the holes that weren't there. So... So make sure outreach is a very important part of, um, of any change or any type of new system you would introduce. Now, depending on whether you want to buy your own equipment and conduct your own elections, certification, just to give you a timeline on that, for a vendor to take a equipment to be certified at the federal level, that takes close to a year and close to a half a million dollars. And those costs do get passed on. Once it gets past the federal certification, it comes to the state that's six, months to t that's six months to a year and close to $400,000. So that's what Sequoia is facing right now in getting their system certified. So um, Dave McDonald, who is the registrar of Alameda County, he was kind of in the news not too long ago, June 25th, and uh, they were talking about moving the three cities to maybe the 2010 election with the IRV. And he was quoted in the article as saying, um, if the system is certified, the cities will need to split the one-time $350,000 software fee and foot the bill for the firmware up upgrade for the 1,000 precinct scanners and the cost of a separate ballot for any ranked choice election. So that was his estimate on how much it would cost for the software upgrade. Now, going back to Pierce County, um, in this, she actually submitted a paper, and I was at, I, could, I got a hold of it and uh, called her today and I talked to Jan about the whole thing and I said, can I use it tonight? And she goes, oh yeah, go ahead. So I'm referring to, it's called Provisional Certification of Voting Equipment and Tabulation System and it's on the back page. It says Federally Certified RCV and that's Ranked Choice Voting, which is basically the same as Instant Runoff Voting. Software does not, it did not exist. This is for her election November 2008. Pierce County obtained budget funding for purchase of Sequoia Voting System, RCV, Software Module, Internal and Public Logic, and Accuracy Testing was conducted for many weeks, finally leading to the State of Washington granting emergency provisional certification. 
We are still awaiting federal certification with the product currently under review at the iBeta laboratory. During the latter stages of testing, it was determined that polling place tabulators could not be utilized. They were not robust enough to handle the RCV ballot images and they would not support multiple precincts with one memory pack. A central count procedure for tabulating for the for tabulation of all polling place ballots was implemented. This course of action called for the hiring of 114 ballot transporters and processors. A 24-hour around-the-clock schedule was implemented to process the increased volume, and staff would work shifts up to 17 hours daily to check in, visually scan, and tabulate the polling place ballots. So it's a little difficult for the first imp implementation. Our equipment, each one of our precinct off, I mean each one of our precinct scanners, cost about $5,000. Each one of our auto marks, which is required because you need to have a voting system accessible for voters with disabilities, those cost about $5,000. Sacramento City had 176 polling places in November, so you would need, I'm guessing, at least 200 of those if you went that direction. If you chose not to have a precinct scanner at each place and brought them all back, or if we needed to upgrade the precinct scanners, that's about how many we would have to do. Um, because not everybody votes at the precinct, they send the ballots in. You would also need a central counter to count all the vote-by-mail ballots. Central counters are at a cost of about $65,000, and you'd have to have more than one just as a backup of nothing else. Don't, then don't forget the maintenance cost, software costs, etc. Adding to the cost, of course, is the ballot card because you would not be able to use the same ballot card as you're previously using where we can maybe kind of put your contest on with a few other contests. It would be a separate card, and those are about 50 cents each. Um, Pierce County had a lot of success. <clears throat> In fact, when I was talking to her, she says, yeah, it was very successful, and I'm just going, at that cost? But uh, in, this, in the next paragraph, it says success, yes. She says, a gigantic price involving both financial resources and hours and hours of staff time. The 2008 general election had a total cost of $3.2 million, with $1.6 directly attributable to the ranked choice voting election. That was I, San Francisco? Excuse me? Where was it? This is Pierce County. Oh, Pierce County. They, they just did it. That's why I was kind of okay. figuring out what their costs were. I said, well, so I called her and I said, well, you know, now that you've done it once, surely the price is going to go down because you wouldn't have to repay, you know, all these other things. And she says, we're looking at a November 09 election for just auditor, one contest, and she says her estimate's about $600,000. I said, okay, thank you. <laughs> so, and she said that she'd be more than willing to talk to anybody that would like to talk to her. So, um, and in conclusion, I have also added... Um, Elk Grove, at one time in 2007, was inquiring about some ranked choice voting information, too. Um, they had a report, which is your last handout, and I've included just the chapter on uh, election on the IRV. It has a great chart in the back that kind of pulled out advantages and disadvantages and explained it a little bit more in case you were interested in it. And I did email Stephanie the entire report if you wanted that. So, so how can I answer? What questions can I answer? Do you have any questions from the committee? Jill, oh, Chris? Um, 
I recall uh, this was something that was addressed um, in, earlier in the, um, the assistant city clerk raised this issue, but um, the city's charter, we have a different period of time for assuming office than state law gives you to finish the certification of results. Would you suggest to this committee that the city change its charter to match state law in terms of the amount of time before I, an office holder takes an office to be consistent with state law? I would definitely recommend that we have the same code or the same time limits. That did cause a big problem, like Stephanie explained, when you could seat the council members but not the mayor, and he had his party before he had his swearing in. So it's like, oh. And there, you know, we really, we couldn't move any faster. We had to complete all the steps. So rather than both of us looking like we have egg on our faces, that would be very nice to have the same time and deadline there. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so Mr. Chair, that's, that's something that sounds like it's within our purview, and we ought to probably put on a list somewhere to deliberate at another time, but it's probably a simple change to make. I agree. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Anybody? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Ms. Fuller. Opponents of IRV uh, tout savings in that you don't have your, your uh, runoff elections. And was that factored in with the, the, um, the, the statistics that you gave from Washington? Uh, probably not, because they would have to count for the second election, which they didn't have to hold. Yeah. These were the one-time going out costs. Mm. Uh, Stephanie gave some good numbers of how, in, in her chart, how much each election did cost for the runoff. Mm -hmm. And that's why I asked. I said, well, surely by now you wouldn't have the mm -hmm. full cost for the next time around. Mm -hmm. And that's when she told me it would be 600000 So mm -hmm. remember, they're twice the size of the city here. Mm -hmm. so. And 600000 is about three times what we spend now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and Jan's information is on the front page of that, and she said she'd be willing to answer any questions if you had additional on how Pierce County did it. But I understand you're also having somebody from probably Alameda or San Francisco coming. Joe, we have uh, Mr. Lopasso. Uh, I guess it's sort of a follow-up observation on Mr. Tapio's question. I heard about a mildly awkward situation in a surrounding county where a county supervisor did not re run for re-election but was elected to the assembly and resigned her seat to meet the beginning of the assembly term in the first week of December, leaving her seat vacant till the first week of January, and her elected successor couldn't take office for the balance of that period of time. Um, maybe the question was about certification versus beginning of the term, but I just put on the record, uh, what are we lining up at the state level, executive terms, legislative terms, just a comment. That would be good. You have to make sure everything met all the requirements. Well, does that mean generally just to to get our timelines and schedules in sync with what's required by the state and just deal with it that way? Is that what you're talking about? Good. Seems pretty simple to me. But whatever. Right. Um, anybody else? Jill, thanks very much for Thank taking you. the time, and you too, Alice, for taking your time out of a holiday weekend. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Oh, we have an answer from our city attorney. Well, we have 
most of an answer. How about that? <laughs> it appears that the uh, case that Stephanie was referring to, let me pull this up real quick, actually involved the city of Sacramento back in 1922, in which uh, nine council members were elected under a proportional representation um, voting system. And, in fact, the court overturned um, all of their elections to office on the grounds that proportional representation voting was unconstitutional as the Constitution then read. But uh, it appears to me that there's been, uh, that was a predecessor provision in the Constitution and the Constitution's current home rule provision, which we discussed, which I discussed, as you recall, back in the first meeting or so of the committee, um, in addition to providing for the usual, what uh, most people understand to be the home rule powers of the city in subsection B of section 5 of um, Article 11 of the California Constitution provides that it shall be competent in all city charters to provide for, among other things, um, the conduct of city elections and plenary authority uh, subject only to the restrictions as stated in Article 11 to provide the manner in which, the method by which, the times at which, and the terms for which the municipal officers shall be elected. It appears to me that by its terms that would allow the city to adopt proportional representation. However, um, and I know prior to coming to this meeting several weeks ago, I did some research with respect to the uh, San Francisco's proportional system, and it does not appear to have been challenged or successfully challenged in court. So it's my assumption then that it is in fact a legitimate system. I will, I will also note um, to the credit of the city clerk several months ago, she alerted me to the, Cal the uh, Minnesota Supreme Court is looking at a similar issue under its constitution. And the case uh, that was cited here regarding the city of Sacramento actually cited the original Minnesota case from 1914, which held that in Minis under Minnesota's constitution, proportional voting is unconstitutional because it potentially violates the um, one person, one vote um, concept uh, in elections. Um, having said that, it appears on its face that it's uh, possible for the city to change its charter to allow for proportional voting. I, uh, having said that, I sure would appreciate opportunity to report back at uh, a future meeting providing a more thorough analysis. Okay, that, that's very helpful, Mark. Matt, thanks. Thanks very much. Jill and Alice, thank you. We have a speaker, or I mean a, a member from the audience would like to address the uh, committee on this uh, item, Mr. O'Neill. Hi, uh, I've talked to her here before, and I think you know I'm uh, from Californians for Electoral Reform, which is a statewide organization working on implementing instant runoff voting and proportional representation. Uh, the court decisions, since we were on that, the Minnesota Supreme Court did rule in favor that it was, that it was legitimate, specifically on the issue of the one person, one vote, and saying that, uh, in fact, all voters were treated the same and it did not violate the one person, one rule vote. Um, San Francisco is using instant runoff voting. Uh, it's a charter city, and it's generally, uh, from everything I've heard, I don't have this, the legal sites, but charter cities can adopt whatever kind of voting system they want. And many of them have 
uh, at least provisionally, uh, uh, said that they will do this, like Alameda and Berkeley and um, San Leandro and Santa Clara have all provisionally said they want to use instant runoff voting when the equipment's available. The equipment situation is a chicken and egg kind of thing. The vendors aren't going to develop a new system until they have customers who will buy the system. People who would buy the system aren't going to do it until the machines are ready and the machines have to be certified, which, as Jill pointed out, is a very expensive process. And with the new, uh, since the uh, recent elections and the new emphasis by uh, Secretary of State, they're very tight and very insistent on that. And that's why San Francisco has to go back every year, because Sequoia has not yet obtained national and statewide certification, which is forcing that. But there's good news. Californians for electoral reform has been working with the Secretary of State. We have been developing standards that can be given to the, uh, the vendors so that they will know what is required and, and, and what the rules will be, uh, and that gets the process moving. So the way it is today is not the way it's going to be tomorrow. Things are in the works, and we're, we're working towards that. Uh, San Francisco has saved enough money to pay for their upfront costs. Yes, the upfront costs are expensive, but because you save that second election, that's a lot of money, and it quickly pays for itself. So uh, I think it's wrong to look at the costs of Pierce County or anybody else without looking at the savings they get from not having that second election. So those are just a few things I wanted to point out. I'm sure Blair will have more information on that when he talks next time. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you. Um, it seems to me that the, the cost is huge on this issue, but 3.2 million or something. Um, anybody else on this issue? Okay, uh, more to come. We're uh, going to have another session on this. I, I guess, Mark, you're, you're working on some additional items. One thing that I think would be helpful, given the cost, upfront cost on these, uh, on changing the voter system that Jill pointed out, um, why don't we take a stab at what Mr. O'Neill was talking about, and that is, there is an upfront cost, but over time that will be saved from less elections. What, what is that time frame? Do, could we maybe take a shot at looking at that? Is that like 20 elections or something, or, or exactly how long would it take to amortize a cost like that? Yeah, okay. Any, anything else on this issue? Okay, item 8. Uh, simply as an informational item, uh, as you recall, uh, I made a presentation to the City Council um, regarding the progress. I'm not sure uh, whether you were able to view that presentation. Um, council seemed interested. Uh, the only questions came from uh, Vice Mayor Hammond and Council Member McCarty. Um, I think 
I think they viewed the progress that the committee was making was fine. They, they were very interested in whether we had recited, uh, arrived at any decisions, and I assured them we were getting to that, but we hadn't gotten there yet. Okay, any, any questions on item eight? Dr. Newland. To note that uh, Lauren did note that uh, she would withdraw the request that we take account of putting waste out in the streets, et cetera. Uh, Bill presented that quite thoughtfully and quickly, and uh, she certainly acceded to his suggestion that it's not a part of our work. Thank you, uh, Chad. I, I neglected to point that out, and that was good. I had talked to Lauren before, so she wasn't getting this out of left field. So, any event. Um, okay. Um, we're now to um, public comments. We have no one signed up. Okay. On committee ideas, there there's an issue that two issues that I'd like to uh, bring up. One is surely wanted to make an announcement on the signatures on the petition. As you all know, um, the petitions, actually there were two petitions that were submitted to our office on time. Um, these were the known as the mayor's, the strong mayor petition, as well as the second one, which is the budget analyst position. Those um, petitions have been processed in our office. The prima facie review has been done, and they are now at the county. So the county has 30 working days to validate the signatures and issue a certificate of sufficiency or declare them insufficient. And at that point, then it moves along in the process. But I just wanted everyone to know that our part of the initial front end of the process has been completed. Okay, the, the uh, next item, oh, Mr. Tapio. Uh, thank you for that update, Shirley. And if you would, just keep us updated as it gets certified, and if, if it, there's a date set for the election or and any of those other developments, that would be handy. Um, and also, one other thing, um, going back to the, mo the model city charters um, document, if um, as soon as those are, are available, if you could let us know, maybe they're ready prior to our next meeting and we'll have a chance to skim them before we come to our next meeting, that, I think that would be helpful. Okay, what, one thing that um, I've been thinking about um, and since I've been laying awake at night thinking about this, I thought I'd share that with you. Um, I've been thinking about the next phase of our work, which, um, which we need to think about the process um, which would facilitate our decision-making process. And we need to think about... Um, a way to get to our decision. And uh, we've heard a lot of testimony. We've pro been provided with a lot of written material. And now we're, we're going to, first part of August, begin to grapple with at least the issues that we've been talking about, which is governance, appointment, appointment power, and budget. And so we need to think about a way in which we can come to an agreement. As you know, the council resolution requires that any of our final recommendations have seven out of the 11 votes affirmative 
for any recommendation. Um, so we need to think about a way in which we get to a recommendation and a process. Uh, is it a list of questions? Is it the matrix we've been talking about? How do we move from where we are now to a decision that, that we can make as a committee, that we can engage the committee in terms of what your thoughts are and in a, in a uh, fair kind of dynamic way move to a decision or a tentative decision or a consensus or what have you of the committee. So I, I need to have you think about that because I, I'm going to be working with the staff in the next few weeks to try to present some ideas and maybe a, a, a way to do that. But I haven't figured it out yet, so we're going to need to, we're going to, need to think about it. And especially, um, I think the lawyers on the committee would be very helpful in that. Anything else? Chris, you want? Uh, I'm glad it's you that's staying up at night thinking about this. I guess that's why we <laughs> elected you chair. Uh, I, I appreciate your thought into that. Um, I, I have also had some thought about how we go about that process, and, and I don't know. I didn't, haven't come up with any bright ideas. Um, but I did want to share an observation. Um, I think um, my initial concept of how we were going to do our work as a group was, was a bit different than what we've done here, sitting at the dais and pushing the, the green button to speak and being called on. And I guess I kind of envisioned more like a jury, a jury deliberation type of a thing where we kind of get together and sit around a table and we can kind of say, well, what about this idea? Does this have legs? Does this have traction? You know, that's a stupid idea. And, and just a little more, you know, banter, you know, give and take. And, and um, that was my initial thought of how this might work. And I don't know that we can have that well, sitting here in this way, doing it this way, or if even Brown Act rules and all those things which may or may not apply in their entirety to this group would allow something like that. But... That was just one of my initial thoughts, and I just want to toss that out there. for Well, what I'm afraid of is um, trying to get to a decision that's up or down quickly. That is, um, the, the question of, for example, a separate legislative executive Mr. versus Chair. a... Mr. Mr. Chair, may I interrupt for just a minute? Um, speaking of Brown Act issues, <laughs> this is not I want, on the agenda. This is not the okay. time to get right. into a deep right. discussion right. about yeah. this topic. We need to wait until it's agendized. I was wondering when you'd bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Uh, as I say, I'm thinking about this. I wanted to raise it uh, just so the other committee members could think about it. Chris has some good ideas. Mr. Murphy, were you going to raise it? Gonna, I was going to say something I can't say, so read your emails. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Anyway, this this is uh, we, just to finish that off. I, I, we we need to be thinking about that. As some of you obviously have, but but we need to bring it out and we need to to wrestle around with it. Mr. Lafaso, do you have to? Just going to ask how many email people are those emails going since we're talking about the Brown Act? <laughs> we'll send them all to the city attorney. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, uh, anything else? Okay, this uh, meeting is adjourned. Thank you.